I know you gentlemen have been through a lot, but when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that guy's got great eyebrows. Yeah. I love it. Donald Moffat, right? That's Donald Moffat. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. love his eyebrows. That guy's, yeah. I, I could ride him all the way home. <laughs> you want, you want to go on an eyebrow ride? I would would happily go on an eyebrow. Is he the president in clear and present danger? I think he is. Or is he uh, the Secretary of Defense or something? Let's see. let's see. He's the president. He's the president. It, it's at the end. Harrison Ford's yes. like, you've, you've been a bad man, mister. And he's like, how dare you? And then he's like, you're bad. And he's like, fine, I'll resign. He's Good also, he's, he's Linda B. Johnson in The Right Stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I I feel like he is always perpetually playing an evil old man who also possesses a lot of power, which is like a very yeah. specific type casting, but also one where there's a surprising number of times you can pop up as well, evil old man with a lot of power. Well, let's acknowledge his single most evil character, the tax man in Robert Altman's Popeye. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember you know what? Tax you know man. what? You know what? I'm glad Carpenter won March Madness, but Altman, if Altman had won March Madness, yeah. I truly was going to have a renewal of vows to my wife at Popeye Village oh. and fly all the blank check folks out, Emily. do a wedding episode. Emily. But Carpenter won. I know. I know. Well, next year, maybe. Oh. Do you remember <laughs> his bit in Popeye? Mm, mm-hmm. He's really good in it because his bit is he just keeps on coming in and telling people that there's a new tax that they have to pay for. It's funny. <laughs> Like he's like, oh, baby on a dinner table tax, five cents. The thing, the, the thing about fucking Popeye is it captures the spirit of a newspaper comic strip. It does. It is a perfect adaptation of a newspaper comic strip and people didn't appreciate it. And there needs to be a blank check wedding episode at yep. the Popeye Village Absolutely. in Malta. Absolutely. It's going to happen. One one week on the George Lucas talk show, we set a stretch goal for like one of our fundraisers. That was the the boys go to Popeye Village in Malta. <laughs> and I believe the crew who we had signed on to do it as, as of that moment, which is probably like 2 a.m. We've been streaming <laughs> for like 13 hours and we were like, here we go. If we reach two hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> the boys are going to go to the Popeye Village in Malta. And I believe it was uh, Stephen Weber. <laughs> That'd be fun. Yeah, he's probably Nate, a good hang. Nate Cordry, uh, of course, sure. uh, uh, George Lucas, Watto. Uh huh. Those guys. Patrick yeah, Hotner, we know them. I think there was another actor we had roped into doing it. Anyway, this is not uh, uh, an episode on Popeye. Unfortunately, we will get there eventually. If it's the so last that, thing I do, we will and get Watto's there. Watto's going to officiate the wedding. Oh boy, this is. I mean, God, Watto officiates the renewal of vows at Popeye's village in malta is a pretty incredible event it really is i'm trying to figure out how how far popeye village is from the malta airport let's find oh i i did this math pretty recently i'm glad this is all on our minds independently just like it's it's not a big island malta i believe it's the densest populated place on earth malta anyway really well, because it's so small, sure. you know, and there's a lot of people there. Yeah, I've never been. The other reason I looked into it is because uh, Malta now has, I think, one of only four remaining open Planet Hollywood locations. Oh wow! Oh wow! It's like, is it because Bruce Willis is too lazy to fly there 
and close it down. So they <laughs> yeah. just keep on going. He's like, I don't want to go there. Yeah, yeah here it is. Yeah, it's open it's, right now. Yeah. Yes, it is. I can book a table. What a double episode that would be. Right? Wedding, wedding renewal at Popeye Village, and then you do like a, a Ben's Choice from Planet Hollywood. I <laughs> yes. feel like oh, hell yeah. that, yeah. I hope the mall to Planet Hollywood is just Popeye stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta say, the food... Doesn't yeah. look great. <laughs> Doesn't look great. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Looks but okay. You, you realize the, the Times Square plan in Hollywood stayed open until the pandemic. Mm. Uh-huh. And that mm. was that. At a certain point, they half the real estate became a Buca de Beppo, but it still was half Planet Hollywood on like 48th Street and Broadway. And I, I had always, I don't know. I always thought we'd go someday. I've never been. How did they not become like a, a, a outlet for a ghost kitchen? That's what like all the chains did around here. I know. Yeah. I know. It's it should have become like a, a slides sliders or something. You know, they should have had like three. Di- there should have been a ghost kitchen each for Stallone, Willis, and Schwarzenegger. This, of course, is a blank check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. Here's the thing about the Planet Hollywood in Malta, Griffin. Here's the thing. Yeah. People are confused. I just said it was blank check, and now people are going to think it's Alec Baldwin on NPR. <laughs> of course. It opened in 2019, so they can't close wow. it yet. They just opened the damn thing. Wow. Right. It's fresh. It's, it's too fresh. fresh. It's fresh. Um, yeah. but, but you did kind of spoil, David. Here is the thing. <laughs> okay. Wow. Oh, yeah, that's true. Wow. That's true. This Do week you think- on blank check, we say here's the thing. Do you think people get invited onto here's the thing with Alec Baldwin and then he's like, So what's your take on Trump? And they're like, I thought I was here to talk about the thing, the hit movie. I was sad to be invited on that show and be asked about Trump and not John Carpenter's nineteen eighty two classic, The Thing, one of the great films ever made. No, Emily, Emily, were were you on Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin? I was not on Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin. I have a friend who was. I mean it happens, right? I, I've heard that uh, when Alec Baldwin invites guests on Here's the Thing, before he starts recording, he just goes, oh, one second. And he uh, slices open their hand, takes a Petri dish of their blood, and puts a <laughs> heated up bronze <laughs> copper wire in it to see if it acts up. And then he goes, great. Now I can speak to Patty Smith. Uh, he did tie me to a chair. So Yeah. Right. This is a podcast about filmographies. Sometimes it's about Planet Hollywood. Sometimes it's about Popeye Village. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sometimes it's about Alec Baldwin retiring from public life. These are three subjects that come up a fair amount on the show. Mm-hmm. But primarily at its heart, this show is about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their career and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they mutate into a monster Win- Wolford Brimley baby. And yep. this is a mini series on the films of John Carpenter, Johnny Boy, Carpenter, John John, John John Carpenter, John John, John John Carpenter. Uh, today we're talking, but what I think many people consider to be his masterpiece. But this is a guy, uh, I think, more so than a lot of directors we've covered, who has like five or six movies that people argue are the masterpiece. Yeah, and, and like conventionally argue are the masterpiece, not like outro picks. You know, this is his blank check right this is the one where this they're is, like yes, take what yes. you want this is i, the, the I one, think it's kind of. it's the most conventional like when we're talking about blank checks it's the one that you most conventionally could say like yes that is the blank check i do think mm-hmm. escape from la 
is weirdly his biggest mm-hmm. blank check. But we, I think we talked about this. A lot of that is Russell. Russell's kind yes. of the co-signer on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, that movie costs $50 million, which is, we'll talk about it. Uh, but, but yeah, no, this right. is the sort of, look, he said he made Halloween. He's at the height of his success. He's moving to the studio system. He has money for the first time. This is the blank check. He's refrigerating sets. He's flying to Alaska. It's it's the blank check. He's minted a movie star. Kurt's his guy now. He's yeah, not an unconventional pick. Kurt's helping him like uh, get this uh, glow up, and it is at the time uh, undeniably a bounce. I knew mm. this film had seriously uh, flopped at the box office. I did not realize until I was digging into this last night to what extent this movie was met with like vitriol. Oh God, people hated it. People, people were hated furious, it. furious. Everyone, like audiences, critics, everyone fucking hated this thing. This thing. Do you think it's because a dog's face gets peeled apart like a banana 20 minutes in <laughs> and then after that things get a lot worse? Do you think that's why? Like like this, David? Oh, yeah, wow. Yes. Yes. Griffin yes. has a banana. Griffin, Griffin what is your is this from like a thing video game or something? Correct. Your background? I, Correct. Yeah, I don't recognize it. This is this is the thing video game that came out in like the early two thousands. I think mm. for PC primarily, but then maybe was also on. Yeah, I remember Xbox. it. I remember it. I remember right. that being like a pretty well reviewed, not like great at, reviewed, at, but like people at liked the time. It. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it was sort of like. Uh, ahead of the curve now of like cult movies getting remade into modern video games i uh i, I know it, it has like a trust system it tried to build yes. in like yeah right. like some sort of uh, thematic elements i yeah. think that's what this picture is because my um let me just see uh so my my background is there's like a thing uh, like torso hung right. on the wall a monster right? monster right. remnant yes right but it's like he's like hung like in a noose and then his chest and his lower arms are all like thingy and then the you're i guess this guy in the lower corner you're like his pov and there's a guy standing next to the corpse with a gun to his head and then there's a green <laughs> square above his head with a question mark and i think that's the trust feature i just think this is such a bleak image for a video game, especially yeah. one with graphics that are like not that far beyond like GoldenEye. Like that's the level of detail we're looking at here is like a pretty spare room, a horribly mutilated corpse hanging from the wall, and then a guy with a gun to his head. And there's a box going like, do you trust him? <laughs> Everybody in that image looks like Big Pussy from The Sopranos and Max yes. Payne had a baby. Like that's yes, just absolutely. all look like that. Absolutely. Well put. Well said. Uh, I miss I miss that era. Of, of video games but um i'm surprised no one has taken another swing at the thing another mm-hmm. thing swing there's a lot of tabletop games like i know tab- that yeah yeah and, and tabletop and is kind of where it belongs yeah there have been mm-hmm. a fair amount of comics i think as well but uh makes sense for a tabletop game because it's good to have things where it's like do i trust you you know that's always right. a good mechanic in a in a tabletop game. I, I yeah. do think a big part of it, David, is that like the the 2011 film, which, uh, God, it flips me out that that was a decade ago. Mm. That's, yeah. a, that's a prime example of a movie from the 2010s that I could have sworn came out three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but that movie, I think, had been in the works for like a long time. I feel like from the early 2000s, Universal was like, oh, this thing's considered a classic now. We should do something with it. And there was maybe 10 years of development hell of trying to figure out something to do with the thing. 
And then, right, the video game is sort of at the beginning of that. And then I think there's a period where they maybe, like, didn't want to do more shit because they were waiting to put all their chips on the new movie and try to revitalize it that way. But now it's been 10 years. They should make a new fucking game. They should do shit like that. Well, aren't they planning another remake of this yes, movie they or are. something? Yeah. Yes, yes. The thing I remember about the thing, the <laughs> thing I remember about the 2011 uh, prequel is uh ron moore ends battlestar galactica and there's like a lot of hoopla about he's moving into the movies the first thing he's going to write is the new version of the thing and it's a prequel and it's going to be great and he turns in a script that apparently just nobody liked and like knowing ron moore's love of bleakness his crossover with the thing could have been truly um dark and despairing i would have liked it yeah Mm. you might have liked it although i will say i love ron moore I love the man. Yeah. And mm-hmm. he's made things that I love. But sometimes I do think he, he can outthink himself a little yes. bit. Mm-hmm. He, he, he'll go like five layers deep and I'm like, Ron, just write a thriller. <laughs> like, it's okay. <laughs> sure. like, people, sure. people enjoy entertainment. You don't have to like subvert the genre three times in 40 yeah. minutes or whatever. But anyway. David, have you watched For All Mankind? No, you, I need You to. would love it. I, I knew you the question was coming. Yeah, I know. Been, Look, love it. We've been talking recently, David and I, about the fact that both of us are like, we got to watch that fucking thing, right? <laughs> I, I, I know I got to watch it. I assume I'm going to like it. Here's my bigger take. I think I want to be an Apple TV Plus ho. I think yeah. I want to do that. I think I'm yeah. going to watch C. Why not? Well, David, I am come on. All in. Come on. I'm going to watch C. Why, why shouldn't someone should watch C? Shouldn't yeah. they? I'm imagining trying to like tell a friend at a dinner party. I love that show C, and they're like, "Are you saying a letter to me? What are you? What, what is this? Right? Is, is it the letter C? Is it is it the body of water? Is I'm it like, the- no, no, C, because it's set in a world where everyone is blind. Okay, it's terrible, but you should watch it. Okay, great. Um, yeah. No, Apple Apple TV, good. That's one of the yeah, surprises of the last year. It, they are they're doing the FX AMC thing of like only green lighting stuff they're passionate about. And sometimes it's terrible, but generally it's pretty good. And like and, I, and I watch so much stuff there. It's limited enough that there's like you you can actually develop a standard of quality because you're like, well, they're mm-hmm. not making everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of right. They're trying to be HBO back in the day or whatever. And is that a good strategy? I don't know. Who cares? Yeah. I'm an Apple TV plus ho, okay? Yeah. Uh, it's very hard mention, for me to say that. It's just sort of like a lot of words that don't really yeah, work. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't time. have to say it, and you certainly <laughs> don't have to phrase it that way. Uh, our guest today is Emily Vanderwerf, of course. Uh, our dear friend here to talk Hello. about the thing. Um, yeah. a, a movie, I feel like you emailed me about something else and then ended the email with, by the way, just putting it out there. The thing is a very important trans text. And then I texted David and went, well, I guess Emily's on the thing. (laughs) That's my trump card. I know. You you pulled that card twice, and both times we go, yeah, sure, yeah, the episode's yours, and it's like Christmas Carol. You just pulled the. It's about Christmas, which right? You pulled the Christmas card, yeah. But that's uh, that's how you get on this show five times. You just keep saying, oh, is this 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 is the fiver, right? Mm-hmm. Look, this is Emily, fair. you're one of our favorite people. You're one of our, our favorite guests. You, you know, we need no convincing to have you on the show. But I just admire that, like, this and Silence of the Lambs, you picked, like, the two biggest movies in each filmography. And both cases, people, you would sort of bang the drum for pretty hard in March Madness and just went, like, I'm throwing it out there. Here's my take. Try telling me I'm not on this episode. <laughs> 
Well, I, uh, you know, um, I, uh, uh, I wrote a very nice email to you guys. I was just like, you Hey, did. you're, you're my friends and I love you and I'm in your corner. And by the way, I should be on the yes. thing and Correct. it worked. It worked. So it worked. don't reward my behavior. No, um, it, yeah. it, look, it's, it, everyone is rewarded every time you come on the show. That's exactly um, true. That doesn't uh, mean that anyone should ever write me an email though. No, no never. Do I want to get clear. <laughs> and, and we're not even saying don't write us that kind of email. We're saying no, no one ever write any email to either of the two of us. If you want to write me an email, you just better think long and hard about that email. Yeah, yeah. Just be very, very sure you want to do it. <laughs> the, thi- the thing that I, the thing that I have backed myself into with this show is that I alternate one of my favorite movies of all time with one of my least favorite movies sure. of all time. Mm. And that happened because I was on Munich and I was like, right. I don't really think I, I, I think that's my weakest episode to rank myself. I was like, I don't really think wow. I nailed that. And then I was having lunch with David when I was in New York sometime. And he was yeah. like, I think we're going to do Michael Bay. And I was like, I will come on and do Transformers. Uh, what's the second one? Revenge of the Fallen. <laughs> yeah, this is one I of the believe... worst movies. Yeah. yeah, it's Revenge of the Fallen. Correct. One yes, of the worst yeah. movies I've ever seen. Yeah, we've talked <laughs> about this. The 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 legendary canceled Michael Bay series where we had booked every episode, yeah. where we literally <laughs> had the whole schedule figured out, and then we got much. S- scared yeah. by the internet. Yeah, everyone was wrangling for the island, though. That was the one everyone wanted. But everyone I think... thought they were being cute asking for the right. island, but they didn't realize everyone wanted the island. I want to say Arp had called dibs on it first, but everyone else was asking. Arp for it, but called I dibs on it in his way of like, well, that's my episode because it's sort of his most forgotten project or whatever. Right. Like that yeah, was sort right. of he was just identified. Which is it? I don't know. I don't know. I, uh, but yeah, then I, I David was like, uh, David like DM'd me one day and like what felt like a panic, being like, "You hate Alice in Wonderland, right?" And that was. My- <laughs> It was my second time on. And since then, I've just been like, I'm going to keep this going. So, Right. Love, hate, love, hate. That makes sense. Yeah. You're, you're, so yeah. Now love, I have hate. to do another total piece of shit. So you either got to mm. do finally do Bay or you got to do Tom Hooper. Those are kind of the two where I'm like, I know what We're I'm doing. We're not doing Tom Hooper for crying out loud. What's the Who, Tom Hooper? Also, which is. one? Yeah, I will do there. the Danish girl. It will yeah. be, mm. everybody wants the longest episode in blank check history. I want the shortest episode. Yeah. It's going to be the Danish girl. It's me talking for five minutes. Then there's five minutes of box office game. There's like 15 minutes of ad reads. That's it. <laughs> I can't, I, I don't know. Can't I like read some like Wikipedia facts from like the page for Denmark? Maybe, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Ethnic groups, 86% Danish, stuff like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. gro- gross domestic product it seems to be about $370 billion. Yeah, we could get into some Denmark facts, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if we have to pad the episode, we could just have pastries. Yeah, have <laughs> some Danish. Oh, exactly. We just sort of go on da- Danish tangents, various Danish yeah. tangents. Yeah, because, I mean, Emily, you're you're saying I only want to talk about this movie for five minutes. You're forgetting that we did an episode on a master builder that featured a straight hour of talk about Playmobil. Yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> this is true. true. Yes, yes. But, uh, yeah. But we'll I, I, always yeah. find a way to make it too long. <laughs> I appreciate uh, that. Anyway. Uh, we're never doing Tom Hooper. I mean, Danish Girl is probably the biggest argument for never fucking doing Hoop. Tom Hooper. There Everyone's it like, is. it'd be funny to have a Cats episode. And I'm like, but at what cost? There's a, there's cost? some interesting stuff in there. Like, Les yeah, Mis is, is like a very fucking weird movie. No, no. Every episode would be funny, I think. The Damned United is bits. actually a good movie. Yeah. The King's Speech, you know, everyone can do the bit. Look, you the know, Saving Grace... The saving grace of the hypothetical Tom Hooper series is that it's not long. 
It's not long unless he like puts out two, you know, two movies a year starting right, next no. year. I don't know. Right. I don't know if what he, Tom Hooper's working. If on he now. starts going Soderbergh, we're fucked. <laughs> he was a very yeah, right. He goes full. He's just doing iPhone shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he was a lovely interview. I got to say, he was a nice man. Uh, yeah, you interviewed him like like two days before Cats came out, right? Mm-hmm. I interviewed him, right. It was like a day or two after the premiere, which I had been at, and right. bef- like the week, yeah, it was the week of the movies coming out. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And he was clearly someone who was uh, hours removed from finishing visual effects. Well, he wasn't even removed. It was still happening, right? Because they were still fucking yep. fixing the movie after it yep. came out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the tired. cyberpunk 2077 of movies. Seriously, <laughs> yeah. why are we talking about top? Okay, the thing. Right, this is yeah. a mini series on the films of John Carpenter. It is called They Podcast because I was overruled, hey. and today we're talking about the thing. His 1982 thing. colossal flop, reviled. I, 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 it wasn't a colossal flop. It was a okay, flop. A flop. It was a flop. Yeah. It, it, yes. it, it disappointed. Un- it completely disappointed. There's no doubt about it. Um, and it came out, you know, obviously, famously, pretty much in the same month as E.T. And yes. Universal released both movies and thought E.T. would be like a dumb kids movie that no one wanted to see and that the thing was going to be a big deal. And, and they were wrong. I know that's often cited as like one of the real causes of this film's negative reception is that this film was sort of like so uh, antithetical to E.T. and its spirit and its relationship to aliens. It was so bleak after everyone saw this life affirming movie. But like the level of vitriol cannot be explained solely by that. I mean, a cinefantastique, which was like a classic horror sci fi fantasy nerd magazine, did an issue called it. Right, the most hated film of all time. It was the cover. It, yes. the cover was the thing with the headline: "Is this the most hated movie of all time?" That was a valid question in the aftermath of this film's release. And it's like, uh, what are what are some of these quotes here? Vincent can be called it the quintessential moron movie of the eighties. Instant junk. Hell yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, this is the thing. Sounds good, right? I keep saying this is the right. thing. Jesus, uh, I know I say that all the time, but still. Right. Uh, well, the reason f- that people uh, thought that, Griffin, is because the thing is really gross. It's a gross yes. movie, which, again, rules. Mm-hmm. It is, is good. But uh, I just think people were completely unprepared because everyone who's ever seen this movie without fair warning or whatever is completely unprepared for what's going to happen. Right? Yes. Yeah. yes. You just don't. Yeah. You don't know. Uh, my wife uh, uh, had had seen this movie before and rewatched it with me last night and was just like so grossed out by it. I mean, she loved it, but she was just like, I forgot how gross this is. I've seen it. I watch it every year and forget how gross it is. It seems like an austere movie until it very much is not an austere movie. <laughs> well, we should also point out it does start off with just someone trying to murder a dog. <laughs> Which rules? Why would you well, want to kill this dog? But- this better be a bad dog. That guy really doesn't like that dog. Well, yeah, right? Because, like, uh, first timer, you're like, you don't know what's about to happen. So you're just like, are these guys just killing dogs? And that's, like, kind of their deal? You know, clearly you make the connection later. No, of course. But, no, that was Forky's reaction. She's just like, they're going to kill a dog? And I'm like, you don't get it. This is not a good dog. This is... (laughs) 
<laughs> this is a bad news dog. Heard of I bad mean, news bears. This is a bad news dog. Bad, yeah. bad news dog. This is Ebert's review ends with the thing is basically then just a geek show, which he's using in the like carny term of geek, which is a show where you watch people bite chickens' heads off and shit. Right. He was right? actually he was okay on it though. He he gives it a mixed yeah. review. He gives it two and a half stars. He says it's basically right. a geek show, a gross out movie in which teenagers can dare one another to watch the screen. There's nothing wrong with that. I like being scared, and I was scared by many scenes in the thing, but it seems clear that Carpenter made his choice early on to concentrate on the special effects and the technology and to allow the story and the people to become secondary. That's maybe the most positive review it got from a major critic. And that one is saying... It's good if you were not expecting any depth or intelligence out of this material whatsoever. I, but I understand it. I think this movie just scandalized people. It's too violent. Like I, 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 I just they wish they were like, I know you can't do that. Like it, it I really think they were walking wild. out of there being yeah. like, too much, too much. This is I a studio get, movie. I get seeing this at one press screening and being like, okay, no, no, no way. Yeah. And then like it right. sits well. Like this, mm-hmm. this movie, like. Is very bleak and nihilistic and dark, and that often bombs in theaters. And then it, when it comes home to all the like weirdo shut-ins like us, people are like, "Fuck yeah, that's yeah. what I need." Look, I mean, I don't want to be rude about Vincent Canby, who I'm sure was a nice man. <laughs> I, I don't and know at about the that. Ti- he may, maybe he was a mean man, but at the, yeah. you know, at the time he's reviewing the thing, he is near the end of his uh, tenure. You know, he basically wrapped up. In the in the late eighties, as a film critic, but I just I really just don't think I think that like that there was just a certain kind of critic who was seeing this movie and was like the minute everything goes hog wild is turning their brain off to the darker theme like to to the sort of thematic stuff. They're just like that's just the movie where tentacles come out of people's faces and stuff. I I, I can't think about it anymore. I just find it fascinating that it was such an immediate and dramatic and total turnoff for people. Like I understand this movie is very gory, but it was just like there's an opposite of of this, which is Siskel and Ebert's Toy Story review. I find really fascinating because they only talk about the graphics. But you're not that interested in Toy Story. It's very strange that you find that fascinating. Yeah, it's weird that I've watched that 87 times. But it's one of those things where it's what? like, it's because I'm such a fucking persnickety Toy Story nerd that I'm like, you guys seriously don't have anything to say about the meat of the movie? And their whole review is eight minutes of them being like, and the wood on the floor, it looks like real wood. <laughs> and you do look well, it at does. A, right, But you look at a lot of Toy Story reviews from the time, and it's the opposite thing where people are so positive on the movie, but they can only talk about like, you won't believe it. It looks like plastic. And then this, it's just, every review is just like, what is this fucking shit I'm having to look at? I mean, this is Starlog Magazine, right? Which is arguably like the prominent sci-fi horror magazine of its day. So this is not like hoity-toity, elite, snobby critics. Alan Spencer of Starlog Magazine called it cold and sterile. Uh, A cold and sterile attempt to cash in on the genre audience. Weird, weird take. I, again, I'll say about Starlog, and I don't want to be mean about Alan Spencer. I uh-huh. don't want to be. But, yes. like, those fucking nerds liked Star Trek, where the, no tentacles ever well, emerged from anybody's face. That's what he said. He I said, love Star yes. Trek, too, but he's like, what's this gross shit? Where's he said, the, it's, you know, deep ideas? It's know. a cold and sterile horror movie attempting to cash in on the sci-fi audience against, quote, the optimism of E.T., the reassuring return of Star Trek II, the technical perfection of Tron, and the sheer integrity of Blade Runner, which Blade Runner comes out the same weekend as this, I believe. I, we'll get I, to I that. 
well, I don't want to be rude about uh, Tron either because I love Tron. But yeah, uh, I do too. I don't know about technical purpose. I agree. <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Even at the time, I think that's not really a thing you can throw out at it. But but this is like beyond this. Okay, so you look at that and it's like that's him saying reflecting what we're all talking about, which is like this movie's too bleak. It's too gory. It's just mm-hmm. so mean and rotten at its core, right? Right. It's just this visceral, uh, visceral visual effects showcase. But right. then he goes even further in his review and says. Uh, uh, Carpenter was not meant to direct science fiction, but was instead suited to, quote, direct traffic accidents, train wrecks, and public floggings. That's Jesus. kind of funny. Sure. It's kind of a funny line. But isn't that just wild? Here's the other thing, though. And I did say here's the thing again. And I understand that I did that. And I will cop to that. Yeah. It's like, you know, when Psycho came out and the sort of early reaction to Psycho from a lot of these fuddy-duddy critics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I say that as a fuddy-duddy critic. Was like, you know, kind of, you know, unease and, and very mixed and sort of, you know, ooh. but then, of course, Psycho becomes this phenomenon. Right. And people are checking it out so much that I think it very quickly gets reassessed. People are sort of like, well, geez, well, that thing yeah, kind of took and, over the bo- world. Bonnie and Clyde and whereas, is a similar thing. Yeah, I mean, exactly. there are examples We're, of this. Right. This, but the thing is sort of a bomb. And so it's yeah. kind of like, yeah, we were right. That thing that audiences right. rejected that. It was too gross. And so that's what's funny about its its now canonical yes. status that it, like it survived all that. It's also funny that it was so roundly rejected by both like the fan genre press and the mainstream press, and flopped and has been reclaimed by both. Like I feel yeah. like it is one of the rare genre movies of the last forty years that is sort of put on like a great American movies pedestal, not this is a good popcorn movie. And it's right. also within sci-fi and horror circles, I think, thrown up as one of the 10 best ever. I uh, um, I was not paying attention to the critical reception in 1982 for some mm. reason. Uh, but when I was a... Uh, an uh, Alan Spencer <laughs> fan? Sorry, I wasn't. Enough. No, I wasn't. I didn't subscribe to Starlog at the time. Mm. Um, when I was uh, a little kid, there was I loved horror stuff. Horror's always been my favorite genre. And there was this book in the school library called movie monsters that Mm -hmm. had, uh, you know, it was about Frankenstein and the Wolfman and Godzilla and jaws and gremlins. And then the thing, and like the whole chapter on the thing was just like dunking on how bad the movie was, but we have to include it because the special effects are so impressive. So that was my first impression. And then I feel like kind of the film geek world of the early 2000s internet reclaimed it. So then I watched it for the first time in college. and was like, this movie rules. This movie's great. Griffin, there's an argument, and forgetting Patreon because I never remember what we covered on Patreon. Sure. But there's an argument that this is the best film we've ever covered on the podcast. I'm not saying, you know, obviously it's all in the eye of the beholder, yada, yada, yada. But, no, but there's it's, an it's, argument. It's it's reasonably in that 10. Yeah. You know? I would say so. Right. It's it's in that echelon. Yes, it's absolutely. Like the Thing, Assassin's Creed. Those two, uh, obviously. Under Siege 2, probably right. coming in at number three. Right. Uh, Clifford, yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe Dirt. Uh, <laughs> right. The man who Dirt, knew too Dirt, little. Dirt's more in the back half of the top ten. Right? <laughs> but he's there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's right. six through ten. Uh, I, I just, I kind of can't get over like I was just digging to find anyone defending this movie at the time on any level. It doesn't the, really the, seem like no. Yeah. The the yeah. level of rejection is uh, fascinating 
to me. And yes, like the timeline of sort of it being reclaimed, because I think I see it about the same time I see this when I'm maybe 13 or 14 in like the early 2000s. I'm seeing it probably because like this video game is coming out. You know, mm. I'm seeing it starting to get regurgitated into other mediums, and I'm very much like a dutiful nerd kid who's like, oh, what are the things that are part of the canon? You know, anytime anything's getting canonized, reclaimed, and a cult is building off of it, I immediately uh, rent it. Um, I, I don't think I had seen it in full since then, which is odd, but it also is a movie where like every second of it was burned into my brain. Yeah. Um, can I share... Uh, the first time I saw this movie, I remember it really clearly because it was one of the first times I ever smoked a bong. <laughs> and this movie, man, wow, did it like blow my mind in just the best way possible. And just to complete the image here for our <laughs> listeners, uh, Ben is wearing his own congratulations ball cap and his virtual background is the dog. <laughs> the, the dog, the dog post uh, yeah, banana peel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the bloody dog. Yeah. It's the exactly. bloody dog when it's got like sort of the warm face. Fork. Yeah. When this is when Forky just uh, held her iPad in front of her face and was just like, "Just tell me when it's over." And then like a minute later, was like, "It's not over." And I was like, "Now there's like two more minutes of this dog just fucking going nuts." It's also Sorry. one of these things where like I, the the budget. Botin was given Rob Botin, who's the genius behind all the uh, creature effects in this movie, was given i think 1.5 million dollars out of a 15 budget uh yes that is correct and initially he was given less uh, right but it, it it made it all the way up to about right. one and a half million dollars right so. i think universal offered like a quarter of a million three hundred thousand and they were like right. that's a lot right yeah. that right they were like that's the most we've this was far and away the most they had ever paid, uh, spent on the monster element of a monster movie. And that was Carpenter's whole thing is like, why do we always skimp out on that? That's like the thing that everyone cares about. And uh, 1.5 was seen as exorbitant. And it is, I, I know, you know, factoring in inflation, 1.5 went a lot further back then than it does today. But it remains astounding that they were able to get that much out of that amount of money. Well, this is one of those movies where you don't know how they did it. I, you still, you I, I still, know that's the yeah. hackiest thing to say, but it's true. Like, I'm like, how the fuck are they doing this? Yes. Like, when 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 it's all like writhing around, all those they. I think here's my here's my theory. I think they uh -huh. got a real thing. I think they oh. got a real one. You think they got a real thing? Got a real thing. Mm -hmm. I think they brought in a real thing, and it that it did all that stuff, and they just covered it up. And that's those, my opinion. Those perverts in Hollywood. Those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lefty hypocrite liberals got a thing. I think there's this thing, and I'm sure David can speak there's, to this There too. is this there thing. There is this thing. Yeah. I think that within criticism, there is a lot of received wisdom. And mm. you become a critic and yep. you're like, here are the rules of a good movie. Yeah. And you can break maybe a couple of them. But if you break them, I'm going to be watching you. And it takes a long time to break out of that mindset. And I feel like... That has become easier with the advent of the internet because you're exposed to a whole bunch of different viewpoints on what makes a good movie. But at this time, like, you know, something like, oh, there's this much special effects automatically. People are on their, on their guard and then it's that bleak. It's that, you know, the special effects are all poured into the monster. Like, I think there is an element of it just broke a bunch of like unstated rules and it did so brilliantly, but it was hard to see that because the rules are so prominent in your brain. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, David, I sent you, I mentioned this in an earlier episode, but it, what's it called? Terror on Film? Yes. Which was an internally produced universal promotional half-hour video that was directed by Mick Garris, mm-hmm. uh, who's in the stable with these guys and later goes on to become a director himself. Um, and it's him interviewing John Landis, John Carpenter, and David Cronenberg, because all three of them had just done universal movies. Uh, it, it's it, right. It's being made, I think, before uh, the thing has been released, I think. Right. Fear on. I'm sorry. The name of it is Fear on Film. Of course. Right. Of course. It's a video. Videodrome. And is Landis's movie American Werewolf or. Right. And that's come out already. I think that one has yeah. come out and Videodrome and the thing have not. But I think it's Mick Garris just as like a fan working in the Universal mm-hmm. promotional department being like, here we have these three guys who are trying to like bring back horror at a major level. It Universal, I mean, there was this feeling I think sort of of like, this is Universal's roots is like these classic monster yeah. movies. Here you have these three guys. One guy who's sort of like a nasty genre guy who's made these really profitable indie movies. This kind of like avant-garde Canadian cerebral Freudian and body horror dude who's like this art house favorite who's now making studio films and then you have john landis who's this populist like ribald comedy dude who's yeah. now getting back to his sort of schlocky genre well, he's love. right that's the thing like landis has this vibe of like the schlocky showman carpenter right. is just the kind of like guy who's like look i do the work what can i tell you i make right. movies movies i'm a carpenter people. right yeah. i make a cabinet and then, yeah and cronenberg whenever you ask whenever he's asked a question you're like is this guy about to like produce a gun and shoot someone like he's <laughs> right. just sort of like you know he's david cronenberg you're just right. he's unsettling and he's right every quiet. answer of his also starts with <laughs> not to get freudian about it but <laughs> right. <laughs> it's pretty good and of course it's and the good. whole thing has the vibe of like a pbs yeah. you know it's, it's incredible in some, in, i, I in mean some i remember room. seeing it in high school and stuck with me and i've watched it a number of times i rewatched it again today it's on the videodrome criterion but you can also find it on youtube in full um but it's very interesting the framing of these three guys where it's like universal's making a big play for like big budget horror with like you know real directors and shit and uh American Werewolf in London is like a fairly, you know, reasonable hit. And Videodrome is like too weird for the fucking public, but it's like very well received by the critics and Cronenberg fans. It like helps, uh, you know, build his it's reputation his as no tour. into, right, into sort of like genuine art house. Yeah. Right. And and then the thing is just kind of there in the middle. And they're talking a lot about their theories about what you can and cannot do in horror. Uh, this is why I'm bringing it up, Emily, your sort of thing about like the unwritten rules. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're sort of comparing their notes on like, what do you think you can put in a movie? What is immoral to put in a movie? What works with an audience? What doesn't? And Carpenter is so unpretentious about everything. He's far and away the guy who talks the least out of the three because, I mean. Right. You want like, him to talk more because you, you're right. sort of sitting there. Right. I mean, Landis, Landis is, Landis yak, is yak, a yak, fucking like, ham. Shut up. Yeah, right. right. And Cronenberg is like just anytime they ask him a question, he gives a, a Griffin Newman length answer. He just can't <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> concisely put any of his thoughts into words in less than eight minutes. But uh, Carpenter, they ask him, they're like, what do you find scary in movies? And he goes, nothing. And they go, movies don't scare you? They go, you don't get scared? He goes, by movies? And they go, yeah. And he goes, no. <laughs> no, not since I was a child. 
<laughs> yeah, he he does have he has the term for what what is it like a, a chair raiser, right? Like a, a seat a, the, lifter. A seat lifter. That's what it is, right? Right. He was saying, "What is it? It's the thing from uh, uh, it's not it's not the movie that he's remaking here. It's a thing with a similar title, though. It came from another world or something oh, like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It came from outer space. It came from outer space. Right. That's the movie that he was saying he saw when he was four in three D, and it made him want to be a filmmaker. And he called it a seat lifter. And then every time they ask him a question that's a little more highfalutin, he's like, I don't know. And then at one point, Landis <laughs> is just like. John, I read your script. I have no idea how you're going to pull any of these things off. And he's like, yeah, it's rough. (laughs) Hard to do. And he's like, no, but you don't understand. Like, the things they describe in your script. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's real difficult. I think Universal had been wanting to remake the thing from another world for a while. The thing. Uh, I had never seen the original until today. Today, I, I watched the this movie last night and then I watched the original and I watched the prequel and I watched this uh, fright on film fear on film uh, today this morning Um, and uh, the the original is this point of much contention whether Hawks really directed it or whether he's a very commandeering producer credit to Christian Nyby who was not you know it was his first movie and he never made a lot of big movies and Hawks produced it and he probably you know Whatever. He he was involved. Uh, which, by the way, Nyby's review of Carpenter's movie was, if you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, it's a terrific commercial for J&B scotch. <laughs> well, that is... Well, you know, he's actually yeah. right on the second. It does kind of make you want a bottle of J&B. It makes you want but a bottle of J&B. I don't really, like, go to the slaughterhouse? How am I going to go to... What am I going to knock on the door and be like, hey, can I just watch today? <laughs> like, you guys have a Listen, <laughs> you can do that. That is allowed. I was Is taken it? on a trip of a of a butcher shop as a kindergartner. They were like, "Come on, kids!" It's very Troy McClure. It's a wonder right. that I. It's a wonder that I like horror. Uh, my my dad's office used to be in the meatpacking district, which now is just a very uh, a hip uh, nightclub, a high end clothing store neighborhood. Uh, but back then was, uh, as its name suggests, a meatpacking district, a like fifteen block stretch of manhattan where the uh streets literally ran with blood and everything smelled like death uh and i just find it so funny that like decades of trying to make that neighborhood hit uh, hip cannot correct the fact that like the rats it's like in their blood it's in their like their cells they'll never forget, they'll never forget those streets um all these places are infested what i was gonna say is i had not seen the original film which I think was a favorite of Carpenter's. He obviously uh, spotlights it in Halloween. Hawks is his main guy. Uh, It is based on a short story, uh, which is called Who Goes There? A novella by John W. Campbell Jr. Um, I knew this was a loose remake. I did not realize that, although the concept of the thing adapting and replicating other forms and that sort of like, I don't know if the person next to me is who they say they are, sort of paranoia, is in the original story. It is not in the Nyby movie because they couldn't afford it. So it is just kind of a guy who looks like Frankenstein. They joke about him being a giant vegetable. Yeah, he looks like a big plant. Right. It's black and white, but I think uh, they, they, they talk about him like he's a big carrot. And yep. he's sort of like a ve- vegetable Frankenstein. And there's just a thing they find in the ice and then they thaw him out and then he's sort of hiding. And it's sort of closer to 
alien in that it's just like they're in this base and there's a group of people and there's one thing that's lurking in the shadows hiding out in the steam rooms and shit the boilers the monsters uh the monsters played by james arness right the it is the, um, Gunsmoke guy yeah correct correct um, big tall motherfucker he's a six foot six dude it's also funny that one of the humans in the skeleton crew of the movie is also six foot six so there's like (laughs) one of the good guys who's trying to like outwit the thing is as monstrous looking and 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 even sort of in facial structure looks more like a frankenstein than james arness who is just wearing a lot of uh prosthetics but you know how james james arness got hired in hollywood uh, how I'm looking at his Wikipedia page. He hitchhiked there from mm. Wisconsin. Yeah, and then he just started uh, calling people up <laughs> and said, "I'm I'm big." Yeah, I and he probably walked in the room and they were like, "Hey, you really are big." Yeah, put him yeah, in, put this huge. guy in a cowboy outfit. He yeah. got the he got the job on Gunsmoke because uh, John they approached John Wayne and John Wayne thought about it mm-hmm. and then was like, "No, just hire this guy." And so they hired him. Um, and uh, uh, it's a very different like history if John Wayne just goes to TV in 1955. Yeah. Yeah. But. <clears throat> yeah that is uh, fascinating to consider. Um, but, but yes, the, the milieu of the movie is there. Like it is the sort of like uh, t- tough man stuck in a cold base, you know, in the middle of nowhere trying to outwit this thing. But um, – they had tried to develop this for a while with Toby Hooper. Yep. Uh, I want to pull this up if you give me a second. I think there might have been some other people who worked on it at different points in time. But the, the Hooper uh, one was a big one. William Nolan is the big one. They're, later, they, they think about bringing in Walter Hill and, and uh, their, uh, Sam Peckinpah and people because Carpenter briefly was like, thought he could go make El Diablo, which is his like, you know his long gestating passion project mm-hmm. it's just so it's so funny to imagine him calling up universal and being like look el diablo i gotta do it <laughs> right you know like like john we we have, we have a go picture over here he's like ah but el diablo though uh poor el diablo john carpenter says but uh so they called they called up walter hill at a, but then whatever carpenter comes back right but yeah toby hooper is the guy they have for a while and they don't like his big concept for the movie they big whatever universal soured on it hooper and carpenter were in similar spots in their careers for a while and hooper never figured out how to sort of replicate the texas chainsaw magic outside of poltergeist which of course has its own thing from another world style did he really direct this Mm -hmm. kind of mystery behind it but uh this is what i found uh Hooper's version would have been drastically different from the Carpenter version, featuring an alien that did not shapeshift or assimilate and following an Ahab-like character named the Captain, who goes on an epic quest to find and kill the thing. The film would have served its own film, it served as its own film and also as both a remake and a sequel to the 1951 film, with little influence from the novella, which Hooper openly found to be boring. Hooper also wanted the film to be a horror comedy with slapstick humor. It was pitched as a swashbuckling action-adventure epic, a modern-day Moby Dick set not in the ocean but at the bottom of the world, Antarctica. It sounds like a good movie. I think it sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, he pitched it to them. They said, we avoided a disaster. It would have been one of the worst movies ever made. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it would have been I, good. I think that sounds fun. I wish that existed. I'd like to see that type of movie. It feels like the kind of thing if like Guillermo del Toro told you he was making that. You'd be like, hell yeah. Come on. Yeah. I want to oh, see that. It sounds fun. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, 
But uh, it's weird that this was such a high priority project for Universal. I mean, I guess this film was was popular and well liked as a movie that's uh, I'm sure just kind of replayed on like Saturday afternoon movies for decades and built up a following in that way. But it does feel like they were treating this like, well, we got to remake King Kong. We got to remake the thing, you know? Mm-hmm. I, yeah. It's also just that Hollywood thing where I think they had like wrangled the rights away from some like Wall Street people who'd bought them, right? Because it was some, an RKO know, like, movie, exactly. And so you know, and then it's like, okay, we gotta fucking do it, right? Like we 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 so, and you get Carpenter attached, and this is this is the hottest he'll ever be, right? Yeah, right around yes. now. This is right. this is the most. It, it just seems so obvious at this moment. It's like, okay, this guy's about to make the jump. Right. Uh, this is a guy whose name is in front of movies already. He made Halloween, which is like, you know, reinvented Hollywood, basically. Like, of course we of course we should make the thing with John Carpenter. He's essentially had three hits in a row, plus he had shepherded Halloween 2, which was also successful. So it's like, look, this guy birthed the franchise. Now they're selling movies on his name. He made a new leading man in Kurt Russell. Like, yeah, it, it was obvious. Right, you, do you want to read this quote, David? Which one? I saw you because we, we both look at the Google Doc and I can see when you're do. highlighting something. Yeah, I do. I do like to highlight shit. I mean, it is interesting what he's like. Obviously, right. This is, just, you know, he, he, he was afraid to be lost in the giant factory is the quote. But I do. I like the matte painting quote. Oh, this sure. Read Griffin. that. Yeah. Yeah. Which is because ba- at first he's like, yeah, you know, he said he had freedom, but he was worried the Universal would like swoop in at some point and fuck him over. But which is exactly he- what happens on the 2011 movie is like they right. give They're this like, no, like no. Right. Norwegian director a lot of freedom and then they made him reshoot the ending and the beginning and CGI'd over all the practical effects and changed everything. And the guy retired from movies for 10 years. Um, but you know, I like what he says here where he's like, there's a lot of pluses to working here. I'm 50 feet away from Albert Whitlock's office. He's the all time great Matt, uh, greatest Matt artist. And I can just wheel over there and be like, all right, Al, come do this for me. You know, like that's, that's the sort of magic of this movie is he finally can ask for something. And the answer is yes. Right. Yeah, like right, right after before it's sort of like, okay, how do I, you know, take this dollar and stretch it as far as I can. You, I mean, you talked a lot in an earlier episode about how he just wrote the scores for his movies because, yeah. he, you know, it was a cost-saving measure. And, like, this movie has a score by Ennio Morricone. It's it's like a, a right. brilliant, beautiful score, but, like, he finally had the money to hire a composer and, like, right. uh, who turned in a very Carpenter-esque score, if I do say That's so. That's yes. funny. I, I mean, Car- yeah, he, I think Carpenter demanded it. He was, like, less notes apparently, was his big thing. He was, like, make it like me, right? Like, very synthy, very but muted. I also, right. I also read that, like, Morricone kind of studied his earlier scores. I mean, maybe it was at Carpenter's behest, but he was trying mm. to make something of a piece. Carpenter also just said in an interview, I mean, yeah, because he was, like, I think that he wanted them to hire Jerry Goldsmith, Goldsmith Pass, and then they went to Morricone, which is, like... Nice work if you can get it, but um, <laughs> I guess we'll hire I, this Mark we'll Koenig settle guy. for fucking Mark <laughs> right. But but um, Carpenter, someone asked him in some interview, like, why didn't you do the score for this? And he was like, they never asked me to, and I never asked to do it. Like it just it truly was never a discussion. I was excited that I finally had the ability to hire someone right. better than me. In as mind. incredible as he is, in every movie we've covered so far, when it comes to the score, it's not like John Carpenter was like, I had this huge concept for it. He obviously no. is a guy who never gives himself enough credit. 
his scores are wonderful, but he's always like, well, I'm the cheapest guy who can do it right. So I went over there and I, I fiddled with the synth for an hour right. and out came the escape from New York score. And that's how it worked. You know, he's always <laughs> undercutting it. Uh, I do love this quote. This is from, this is a recent quote from Carpenter. He's fabulous. He's just a genius. He didn't speak English. I didn't speak Italian, but we spoke the language of music. Pause. Oh God, that's awful. <laughs> 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 He's like, ah, ah, I'm such a cornball now. But uh, Carpenter showed Morricone the movie, but then didn't really talk to him about it afterwards. Mm-hmm. And Morricone was like, I don't really know what this guy wanted. So I just kind of sent him a bunch of stuff. And Carpenter picked like the stuff he wanted. He actually even filled in some gaps musically, Carpenter himself. Uh, yeah. Like scored a little thing just to sort of yeah. like string it together. And Morricone says, like, one of the things he sent Carpenter became, like, the Hateful Eight theme or whatever. No, you know, like, correct, it's just, like, correct. music he had he, rattling he around. He reused. Right. There was such an excess of music created for this movie. Also, do you know that this film was written by Bill Lancaster? Yes, of course. Who, who the Bad News was, Bears guy. Exactly. He was the son of Burt Lancaster, the grandson of Ernie Kovacs, and he wrote only three movies in his career. Well, because he and died. And they were... The bat, but he doesn't die until 1997. I know he did die young though, but yeah, yeah, no, you're right. He wrote Bad News Bears, Bad News Bears Go to Japan, the best of his three screenplays, yes, and the thing, and the thing, uh, yeah, and he was gonna make Firestarter with John Carpenter, right? And then they both got got fired fired when this bombs, yes, yeah. Uh, I, I, uh, I adore. John Carpenter. I think he's he's a, a genius, and I think he made you know uh, like twelve straight great movies. I think Memoirs mm-hmm. of an Invisible Man is the first movie where I'm like, eh, maybe not. Yeah, um, that's a good call, right? He he's he's pretty much bulletproof until then, but, right? But yeah, like the thing um, is, I think my favorite of his films. I think it's his best of his films. I think it is just an out and out masterpiece. And it, I think a lot of that is he was not doing a lot of the jobs he was doing on these other hmm. movies. His yeah. attention was not as split, but he's a, he's a master storyteller. So he knows when the screenplay needs less, you know, he knows what to do in post. He knows he can trust the people he's working with and also trust his own instincts. So you see a lot of the stuff that's in his early films. Like he does a lot of just like when they're searching for the thing the end um, Gary's just going around like setting up detonators and you're like just watching this happen and it's the actor doing all of that practical business but like Carpenter is just focused on maintaining the tension maintaining the pacing maintaining everything about it and like I think uh, I'm not going to say he's a bad screenwriter because he's a great screenwriter. He's a great composer, but I love that he got to just focus on making this thing as tight and as taut as possible because it's there's, there's not a bad scene in it. No, that's uh, that's a really not. good point. Is this might be the only time he actually trusted this much, entrusted this much of his movie to collaborators? Because so many of the interviews we read about why he chose to write the thing himself or do the score, what yada yada yada. He's like, I don't know, I'm cheap and I don't trust anyone else, and I don't want anyone right. else to fuck it up. And this feels like the time he got like high level collaborators. He trusted them. He worked with them. Which, of course, isn't to say that he wasn't very involved in the screenplay, as we said, very involved no, in the but, score. No, you but know, it's, it's pretty interesting because, like, Lancaster is kind of like, wait, like, why are you hiring me? Like, I'm the right. bad dude. Like, you think I got, like, he was like, I had a take. I, I know why he hired, like, he liked my take. But at the same time, I was sort of amazed he was entrusting me because, like, I've never written a sci-fi movie. I've never, I basically, never written anything. I wrote Bad News Bears. Yeah, he uh, did I, write I, Bad News Bears. And I Bad think, News Bears goes to Japan. 
this is the movie where he's not having to stretch himself thin. And he's a guy yeah. who's incredibly good at wearing multiple hats on one set at the same time. But when he's doing very short, low-budget shoots where he has to occupy eight jobs or whatever, it's kind of astounding that all the earlier films turn out as good as they do. But then this one, you feel him having the space, and I think that really comes to the forefront, Emily, and just the focus of the thing. This movie just feels so lean and focused in, in every way. It doesn't have... It doesn't have a good scene. It, it's all great scenes. Like that's yeah. the, it's not even just no bad scenes. Every scene I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? I like this. Even the remember, boring connecting scenes. Yeah, go on, go on. I remember getting I remember we were watching and watching and watching this movie and I was like, this is another good scene. This is another good scene. And then you right. get to like the defibrillator, which is the most famous scene in the movie probably, and I was like, oh fuck, we haven't done the defibrillator yet and I knew the blood test yeah. was coming and I just was like, this is there's there's not an ounce of fat on this movie. No, there isn't. And and I mean, I was reading about how uh Russell worked with Carpenter, developed this whole backstory for McCready and uh, uh, him, his past as a vet and how he was part of this sort of like atrocity, this mission gone wrong. And that's why he has PTSD and he can't sleep and he's an alcoholic. And then Carpenter was like, yeah, cool. All of this is good. I'm not going to put any of it into the script. Mm. And there's something about the fact that like this movie does not waste its time with like the third act scene where the guy has the fourth glass and says like, you know, I never forget that day. You know, like right. I I don't dislike, obviously, the uh, the jaws robert shaw monologue right like quint's monologue about the the indianapolis is incredible but there's something even more incredible about watching a movie like this where all of it is just kind of inferred and the guys never open up and they never really have those bonding scenes i think there's a thing carpenter fundamentally understands which is the more unreal the villain in a horror movie the less the carrot the less the humans can feel real when you're doing yeah. a movie about a killer shark we all know sharks exist and they might right. eat us anytime. That's they could true. be coming for us right now. Um, so you have you have to have people who feel like people. Yeah. But the thing is probably, I mean, unless they built a real thing, is probably not here. And therefore, we need the people to feel a little bit stripped down and a little bit unreal. And I think Carpenter's really good at walking that line in every one of his movies. Yeah, and just in terms of how they're written and also all the performances, it's like they're just kind of behavioral. They just sort of exist. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you don't have... There, there's even a lack of, like, comedic games to each crew member where I feel like you watch any movie like this and it's like, well, that guy's got this bit. There's yeah. this thing that differentiates him from the other guys in the group. And it's like, no, all that's really differentiating them is the different actors. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, which Those I differences like. in energy. I, I do, too. Obviously, you know, we all love Wilford Brimley. We all love, like, Donald Moffat, like, Keith David, of course. You know, there are a few right. actors where you're like, okay, well, I know that guy. I've seen him in... One million things. And then there's the other guys. And I like, right, that it's not like one of them has fingerless gloves and well, a graphic tee. Okay, know, all right, go ahead. Go ahead. A couple ahead. of them do like to smoke the weed. And I well, do sure. think that we should yeah. shout that out. The wacky tobacco. Ben, you're just he's like... Got, like He's got like a big ass like freaking cone, man, in that one scene, baby. Ben, ben is going full like Mary Jane on this episode. Oh, I, hey, at first time no. I watched the thing, I was to big bong rips. I love. Hey, have I you ever my heard Stoner though, Kings? What? Like, uh, one of the characters they cut it out of the movie. He gives a tour of his like weed like grove like like situation. 
So this has got a rich weed history. Is what we should also say. just mention that Ben's uh, positioning in relation to his virtual background makes it look like the dog is about to eat him. It does. It's like it does. the dog's it's mouth like, is open yeah. and Ben's head's positioned directly inside his jaw. Ben, what do you think that deleted scene, it's like the thing is in the weed garden and then they have to set it on fire and then they're all like, oh, shit, Ben. And they're all like, whoa, feeling kind of weird right now. Like, do you right. think that's how the scene goes? The thing starts doing the cabbage patch. Well, I think what happens is a guy's smoking it and then he passes it to his other head. Oh, oh shit. Right. Fuck. Wait, dude, you look like me. What's going on? Oh, damn, dude. <laughs> the studio's like, what the fuck is this? Sorry. Uh you do have uh, you do have like roller skating chef. And you have, uh-huh. you know, yeah, guy who hates Stevie Wonder. Like there are these sure. little moments where you're little, like little moments. Yeah. There's little these little like okay cupid profile like snippets of like, I like to roller skate while I cook. And right. yeah, sounds good. I do like there's, to roller skate when I cook. There's also <laughs> something I mean, you you already said it, David, but like he refrigerated the whole set. The set was yeah. like 40 to 50 degrees the entire time that they were filming indoors. There's obviously a lot of exterior stuff for this, which I believe they all shot first, which was actually freezing cold. Right. Well, that's where they're up in British Columbia, like on the Alaska border for that stuff. But, all right. the way Didn't up there. they right. also go to Antarctica too? like legit no. went and shot there no. for a week? No, that would be insane. That would be <laughs> crazy. That's what I, no, that's what I read about it. But Where'd you I read that? Um. In this book I got called The Salt on the System by Troy well, I, Howarth. I know that, but no, they, they went all the way up north, like way, way up north. And we're talking, uh, you know, it's chilly up there. And that's why he hired Kurt Russell, because he was like, I need an actor who's not going to whine and moan about this bitch of a shoot we've got coming up. But uh, that that's it. That's That's all I'm aware of. I just uh, I want to interject that Kurt Russell's so fucking hot in this movie. Oh, he's God. so good looking. Well, just he, like he he grew all his hair and the beard yeah. too for a year. Yeah. Is for the stat I read? He didn't cut yeah. anything for a year. He's. I was ranting at Forky about how hot he is, and she was like, "He's all right." Like she was like on board, but at a certain point, she divorce. was like, "Okay, chill out." Divorce. Yeah, d- yeah. And take I, her to Popeye I, Village and divorce her, David. It, it, <laughs> do you think? Wait, does like Bluto do your divorce? Like, yeah. Popeye marries. Um, is and it's like I, I think we sort of talked about it a little bit in Escape from New York, but like it's his. I mean, I mean, the man's he he's 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 very good looking. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a big, nice beard and set of hair too. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Three. He's got kind eyes. Let's. Oh, the eyes. We're gonna spend ten minutes on the eyes. We'll circle back to that. Um. He's got a. But then it's just that sort of like sense of humor, but without ever feeling cutesy, right? Like that's sort of like, eh, come on, you know. That's sort of well, like. Like kind of Harrison Fordy, but a little more sort of I don't know how to put it, like a little saltier, or you know, or maybe a little less mean than Harrison Ford in a way, a little more sad and broken, maybe. Yeah, right. There's always a little twinkle in his eye, and he can turn well, that up or turn Emily, it down. Emily, I said yeah. we're gonna circle back to the eye, but I just want to say it is fascinating to think about this performance with. Big Trouble and Escape bookending it because both of those are like satirical performances. Yeah. Like they're like tongue in cheek. Uh, Big Trouble, obviously, even more of a comedy, but he's sort of like 
parodying action stars. And right, then right, this, right. he's doing, like, the most stripped-down action star imaginable. You know? It's like he's sort of taking away all the the superficial trappings of it and is just playing this man as just, like, uh, I don't know. the, the, the like as just As just nerves. Yeah. Wait, I want... I, there was something... Is it in the dossier? Of course, we're always referring to our dossier. The dossier. The dossier. That's what the we dossier. call it now. That's what we, the, the yeah. Discord fans apparently dubbed it the dossier, and I think about that a lot. <laughs> but um, I, it was how Bill Lancaster. Yes, okay. This is. I think this is on Wikipedia. Uh, Bill Lancaster writes the character. Thirty-five. Mm-hmm. Period. Helicopter pilot. Period. Likes chess. Period. Hates the cold. Period. The pay is good. Period. And like that's such good fucking screenplay shit right where you it's yeah. like that's all you need baby and kurt russell takes one look at that and he's like i get it yeah i know what it, I mean, I, you know this movie is masterful it's all you need shit and and just because i i failed to complete this thread but in that uh fear on film thing when they're asking carpenter about his approach to remaking the thing he was like i love that movie i thought remaking yeah. it was kind of stupid you're not going to top it so then i looked at it and i looked at the original story and the movie doesn't retain a lot of stuff from the story. So I thought, well, that's my thing. I'll just do the original story. And the crux of that, of course, is that story is coming out of a Cold War paranoia. It's all about this sort of uh, shape-shifting creature that can take your identity. Uh, They had cut that out of the budget. He now can maybe revolutionize special effects forever by executing it for the first time. Right. That's his whole thing. It's like, I'm not trying to compete with the Hawks movie. I'm doing the thing that Hawks couldn't do. But as you say, there's the, and then there's this script and people are reading it being like, well, but wait, how are you going to do this? Right. And this is impossible. He pulls it off with a budget that's far bigger than he's ever had before, but not, you know, you know, backbreakingly crazy. Mm-hmm. He saved them money. There's some quote like, right. He saved them a million dollars. The producer said, John saved us a million dollars. He's not interested in trappings, fa- trappings, fancy offices, limousines or fancy clothes. Apparently, John Carpenter does not demand fancy clothes. But, you know, like, so his sort of, you know, economical, like, you know, background, right? Like, Uh helps them probably devote as much as they can to the special effects, which is, like, all you need. And then also, they hire a bunch of nobodies. I mean, no offense to the cat, but, like, you know, they hire a bunch of pretty unknown guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, other than Russell. Right, yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I think they, they... Russell was a bigger star than they thought they were going to get for that part. They had sort of like, there was a period where they were like, what if fucking Clint Eastwood is in the thing? Like they went through all those like blue sky names, but then they got in the idea of like, we can just make this cheap and put all the money into the creature. And then Russell was slightly bigger as a name than they thought they were going to get. Do you know how old Rob Bottin was when they made this film? I don't. You're going to have to 22. Correct. Correct. Correct, Emily. 22? 22. I was fucking, you know, pooping in diapers when I was 22. I wasn't doing groundbreaking special effects. He is born in 1959. I believe he is 23 by the time the movie came out, but 22 during production. And he had already been working since 1976. I believe his story is that he, like... Uh, in the way that Rick Baker was like obsessed with Dick Smith and like followed him or wrote him a letter or something and said like, can I come to your garage and work with you? Uh, Rob Bottin showed up on his doorstep when he was like 15 and was like, you're Rick Baker. Can I live in your garage and work with you? So he starts on the King Kong movie 
that was sort of Rick Baker's first big, big solo job, uh, the Dilarantis King Kong. But then he works on fucking doing cantina masks for Star Wars, Incredible mm-hmm. Melting Man, The Fury, Piranha, Mistress of the Apes, The Fog, Maniac, Airplane, Tanya's Island. He does all of that between 76 and 1980, right? Rick Baker getting him in the industry. Then yeah. The Howling, he is the special makeup effects creator. That's like his big solo job. He's Has 21. Really, really cool werewolf transformation in The Howling. Right. Very yeah. similar timing mm-hmm. to American Werewolf, obviously. They're the same time, and I believe... Right. Rick Baker was supposed to do The Howling, gets offered American Werewolf, quits American Werewolf, recommends Botine, and that's what makes Botine sort of his own man. Uh, and so this is his follow-up to The Howling, which was a big calling card movie, but was also overshadowed by the other werewolf movie. But you also you you love him because he did RoboCop, Griff, he did yeah. uh, Total Recall. I mean, he's got a great career after this, too. So it go ahead. It is astonishing that this movie was not only has three awards nominations. It, it was nominated for uh, Best Horror Film and Best Visual Effects at the Saturn Awards and uh, nominated for Worst Musical Score at the Razzies. Insane. And like the, the really special weird effects... that the Razzies used to do a worse score. This is <laughs> yeah. rude. The, yeah. like, like, the, special the, eff- the special effects not getting an Oscar nomination. I looked up the nominations. They're pretty good. But like uh-huh. I would put this over... Mm, I would put this over Poltergeist, which got nominated. Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's not even yeah. a. I mean, I'm looking I, I it put up. It it's not over... Blade Runner. Uh, Blade Runner ET, perfectly great nominees like those. You know, sure, but, sure. Yeah. Put the it's thing in with those movies, two. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Were there only three nominees that year? The only three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, back then, three was the max. Yeah. But you're yeah. right, Emily. Like, the way this was talked about for a while of just like, well, you have to acknowledge how good the makeup is, but the movie is fucking diarrhea otherwise. It's like how I, as a child, would see fucking heartbeats in, like, movie makeup books. And I'd be like, this thing looks incredible. Andy Kaufman's a robot? It was nominated for an Oscar? How have I never heard of this thing? And then you watch it and you're like, I understand exactly why no <laughs> one ever talks about this. This thing is unwatchable but the makeup's incredible anything you need to know about this movie you can get from looking at still images Mm. and then like the fact that there's like a decade plus of writing about the thing in that tone of just like well we have to acknowledge rob botine broke some boundaries with this movie but don't fucking watch it yeah but i feel like the cult was already starting to form in like the mid 80s like i think i'm sorry i'm just also seeing there was a makeup category with two nominees that year and the thing oh right. not going to nominate. Right, no, because Very the rude. first the first year of makeup is the year before this. American Werewolf right. wins the first makeup award against Heartbeeps. <laughs> yeah, and then this year it's Gandhi and Quest for Fire. I mean, Jean come Jacquinade the fuck movie. on. Uh, Griff, don't come for Quest for Fire. You don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's good. You don't know. No, I, I, it is good. It is good. But, but Ron Perlman's on. in it. The language is invented language. I'm sorry, this movie's in an invented language. You don't know. Is this it about? Movie? Is it about like? I do. I, it's a caveman yeah. movie. I don't know Ray, this movie. Ray Don That's crazy. Right. Uh, did Jean Jacques Renaud direct it? He did. He did. Yeah. Yeah. I know this. I've seen this. I know from Quest for Fire. It's got cool. good makeup. But come the fuck on. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, the question is right. When does the public come around on the thing? I'm right. not sure. 
or what not the public but like just, yeah right when yeah. when does the reputation flip on the thing it is definitely one of those one of those movies that became much bigger on home video was saved by home video and again it's because when yeah. you take this movie home there's like an intimacy to it that really works yes. there it is look i would love to see this movie in a theater i've always been meaning to and every time it gets screened in new york i've had to miss it for one reason or another I would love to see this film on a big screen with a silent audience and all of that. But there is something about watching this movie alone in your home yeah. at night in a dark room that that really kind of spooks you. I am so I am so fucking mad about this. The night before L.A. started its covid lockdown, the thing was screening at the theater right next to me. And I was like, I should go see it. And I was like, no, I'll die. Uh, which is like yeah. the, the kind of the ideal way to see the thing in the theater, but Emily, I didn't go. It's how I feel about not seeing Bloodshot on the big screen while I had the chance. And <laughs> I fucked that up too. I who knows when Bloodshot. there's a repertory screening of Bloodshot? Uh, the Metrograph's going to open back up with Bloodshot. We all know that. Um, David, what if we emailed the Metrograph and went, we would really like to host a screening of Bloodshot? That was our move. <laughs> Uh, that's okay uh no i mean emily early i think off mic you said it's a good christmas movie it is it's, it's a about great christmas around the movie. fire it <laughs> is um even though it came out in the summer i watch it in at halloween for the scares and i watch it in december just because it got great great vibe great winter vibe do, like do you think part of the mistake actually was releasing this movie in the summer as much as i'm sure they figured it was going to be a blockbuster or whatever but like this is they a should goddamn, have released it in the winter. this is a goddamn thanksgiving weekend movie yeah, yeah. this yeah, is a yeah. i am sick of my family and i'm yes. sick of being inside and i'm going to watch a movie about those two things I, yeah yeah because it's just i mean i remember empire magazine had some big article about the thing and was trying to paint the picture of like imagine you're at like a shitty multiplex you're seeing et and you can hear the thing bleeding through the wall, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, yeah. you can just hear like screams coming through, and you're like, "What is that over there?" Like, wait, you know, I'm trying to enjoy my uh, my Reese's Pieces eating alien over here, and like that's how I always thought of the thing. Is there's just this, this nasty little you know side thing going on next door with that was just everyone was walking out like you know barfing. Yeah, yeah, I. I it's it's hard to imagine what this movie felt like to uh, I, the, the average cinema goer with no like um whatever warning right you know cuz like the the trailer doesn't really spoil the creature effects at all i think right yeah. like it's not it's no. not like it's trying to sort of you know be and coy about the it. the poster famously was like done in like three hours overnight with Drew Struzan knowing nothing about the movie. Right. Yeah. With this very vague, it's a good tagline, but with the ultimate in alien terror in it. Yeah. Yeah. Is you could, could that, you could say that about but, a lot of things, right? But the poster is also like a guy in a parka in the snow and like light is exploding out of his hood. It's true. Yeah. It's not really a descriptive. It's it's a good poster. He didn't though. know. We, we he like didn't the read poster. the script. Right, he, no right, one told yeah, me. Right. He was given like no material. They were like, yeah. yeah, this feels like a poster you draw after you're like told you were given a basic summary of the opening credits of the movie. And then like maybe and then there's snow like that's maybe right. all, you know, and it's a good image. It's become Disney. iconic in its own right. But it's I think if you are expecting that and then you get like a fucking spider head and shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, yeah. I forgot the the um 
the the trailer does have um, "Man is the warmest place to hide," which is a way better tagline. Way That's better. Tagline. That's great. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But uh, and it does have a little bit of the creature effects, but it's definitely. I think. Go ahead. I think 1982 had this thing, especially in the like film yeah, the geek, thing. film geek circles. Because, yeah. Yeah. It, it, <sighs> yeah. It had this thing. I think 1982, there was this concept that attached itself to the summer of 1982, Mm. especially when like the film geek websites took over of like, that was the best summer for movies ever. And I think that the thing, the movie specifically, uh, benefited from that and sort of drafted off of that. And then people actually started to watch it again and were like, this is, yeah, this is pretty good. fucking great but th- th- that's an interesting take yeah because there that is such a sort of legendary genre blockbuster summer that the thing might have gotten re-evaluated and reappreciated faster than it otherwise would have right because people were sort of think piecing it into this movement and blade runners right there already right. going through the same arc so you're like okay right. you know you're open to it already because like et poltergeist star trek 2 Conan the Barbarian, Rocky Three, like those mm-hmm. are the ones that are totally succeeding, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty mm-hmm. much. And then you have like Tron, you have the Thing, you have the Road Warrior, you have these ones that are sort of at a cult level or underperforming or sort of like grow later. Um, and then Fast Times at Ridgemont High as well. That is a wild summer. Yeah, it's a good summer. Um, so the the original story and the original film open with a more conventional, like, you're seeing the thing crashing, you're seeing people discovering the ship, they're taking it in, like, all this sort of shit. Uh, and that was Lancaster's first move, was just like, let's just start it in the middle. Yeah. Let's, like, totally disorient you. Um, they wanted to do some crazy thing with, like, the the spaceship crashing into the Universal logo. <laughs> <laughs> for the opening of the movie and then th- that didn't get approved for some reason so he said like then no universal logo which is a really jarring thing i think this was only like the second or third time universal had ever done that yeah. where the movie just starts with a universal picture you don't yeah. see the globe no globe. then you have these opening credits that are kind of classic carpenter just sort of like black white text creeping mm-hmm. dread but it's like an all-star opening credits, except they only name one actor because they're just throwing down their fucking weight of all the people who worked on this movie. Where it's like a universal picture, a John Carpenter film shot by Dean Cundey, yeah. special effects by Rob Boot, and they're just like boom, 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 Brag. starring Kurt Russell. And then you have your title reveal, The Thing, which is exactly the same as the title reveal in the original movie. Uh, and they replicated the exact same process. Do you know what it is, David? I don't, but is it like them cutting holes in a you know sheet or something? Like, what is it something that simple? So they have like a, whatever it's called, like a loose sight, like transparent thing of the, the title, right? The text in that weird handwriting, the thing. They put that on one side, inside of a, a fish tank. Then they cover the fish tank with a garbage bag. I love this. And they fill it up? Is that how it works? I, I think Wait. they fill it up, but here's the better thing. You're not gonna, okay. There's a step here you're not going to okay, predict, okay. right? Uh, I think they put some light behind it so the light will shine through and the letters will glow, right? They have the camera on the other side, and then 
they light the garbage bag on fire and start filming. And the that way makes that sense. The, that makes the sense. The way that actually. the letters slowly appear is yeah. a garbage bag melting away. Because it's flickering. That actually makes yeah. sense when you watch the title. Right. That, uh, that's really funny. But that's what I they did for the original film. And then uh, From Another World comes in underneath. And Carpenter was like, we're going to do the exact same thing and we're going to do it the same way. How is that not the way you reveal the title of every movie? That that should just be the only bag. way. Yeah, you should always light a garbage bag on fire and then reveal my best friend's wedding. <laughs> it's so good, but it's like it is so creepy the way it happens, and it speaks to just some kind of odd effect that you could never really, I think, intentionally design. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we were talking about this a lot in the Halloween episode of just like the weird magic of that mask in that movie which they have now spent eight or nine sequels trying to replicate, and it's never worked as well as the time they just bought a thing and spray-painted it. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I just watched the opening credits for the remake, and they stink. They're bad. (laughs) They're bad and lame. I saw the prequel one time in theaters and didn't hate it. I don't remember a thing about it. So how is that, Griffin, having watched it today? Having watched it today, I think it's fine i think it's fine but i'm also saying that with a decade distance from hearing from everyone that it sucks Mm -hmm. you know so i think there was a little bit of hope as opposed to a lot of the other horror remakes and like 20 years later sequels that were happening around that time in the decade leading up to it uh i think there was a lot of hope of like oh this one might actually be good they got Joel Edgerton and Mary Elizabeth Winston in it. Those are both good actors. They got this cool sort of like commercial stylist dude. Uh, they're doing a prequel. It feels respectful to the original. This is this interesting sort of story point to fill in. And then it's disappointing in relation to The Thing, which is such like an unsparing masterpiece. Universal did kind of muck it up in the way that Carpenter was worried they would fuck up his original film. I think like if you watch it, it's clearly compromised. You, we talked about this in our Fog episode. You can watch the YouTube cuts of all of Studio ADI's tests for the practical effects, and they're amazing. And then Universal freaked out and CGI'd all of them over and also did not have uh, – was unwilling to commit to the bleakness of the, how the film was supposed to end. And so it feels compromised in that way, but it's like better than a lot of horror movies of that moment. Sure. I'll watch I it. Think, I think one thing they got right that at the time they were kind of derided for is uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead as the female Kurt Russell. Like, I feel yes. like that has borne out. So Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's also just, I mean, you know, stuff that's like completely predictable but if you're watching it now it's hard to get pissed off over because you just know that this is what they did but like it's got a lot of jump scares it's got too much score that is too aggressive you know it's got too much panic like a thing that really hit me watching the original the carpenter i have to make a very clear the distinction between the the remake which is actually a prequel the original and then the remake which is the carpenter um but uh, watching the carpenter last night a, a thing that really hit me is like is this the only horror movie i've ever seen where no one screams yeah i mean apart from the line you did to open the which is yelling not even screaming but yeah yeah right. exactly and 
everyone's Wilford very Brimley does smash a bunch of stuff with an axe and he's kind of he, screaming. He does that the, in the every characters movie. have freakouts. <laughs> right. And there's like there's the scene where Kurt Russell has the flamethrower and he's freaking out and trying to get them to release him and all that sort of shit. But like this is a movie that does not like and I know a lot of it is like, well, it's a bunch of fucking emotionally closed off men in the cold and they're dead inside and all of that. But even like Alien, you think about the way that everyone reacts to the chestburster versus this, where most of the creature reveals played a stunned silence. Like people are just kind of like t- terrified, but motionless. And wordless, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. There's an awe and a reverence for the creature that is very interesting, both on the part of the movie and of the characters. Also, they can't run anywhere. Mm-hmm. They can't yeah, run anywhere. Yeah, that's part of it. They're stuck. Yeah. But it's all, yeah. And also, but then there, there's weird, I like the little, like the guy going for the dog, like trying to save, the, you know what I mean? Where they, yeah. the weird little human stuff where it's like, I get why. Like they would just sort of have these kind of instinctual reactions that don't make sense. Like, because you're seeing something that doesn't make any sense. It's beyond even the alien. Like the alien in Alien, obviously, is crazy looking, but it is vaguely humanoid. Yeah, and it's coming for you, so that's scary. You know, like this thing. It's like I don't even know what to focus on. Right, like that was Carpenter's. Yes, right. right, And it's always going to look different, and it's going to change, and it's all of that shit. That was Carpenter's like single biggest sort of mantra with this movie: is like, is it possible to make a horror movie without a man in a suit? You know, that was his whole thing. Like, not only are we going to use modern special effects and makeup and all of that, but we're going to free that from it needing to be grafted onto a humanoid form. Because he's like, I loved Alien, but it kind of bums me out that he's got like two arms and two legs and walks upright. Like, that was my one complaint about Alien. And I want to see if we can make it more abstract and harder to pin down and all of that. I tend to not be one of those people who's like, oh, CGI is bad. You know, like there's good CGI, there's bad CGI, but I think there are certain topics that are better covered practically. And I think this is one of those things where you want to see the like organic gristle of what's happening and like doing that CGI inevitably strips that away just a little bit because your eyes always going to know it isn't real. And here, like, I know it isn't real, but also... It might be, you know, it's that feeling of like they might have actually created something in a lab somewhere. Well, and the just we've already talked about they did and uh, <laughs> it, classic uh, Hollywood scum. But um, uh, Carpenter in that fear on film thing is talking with Landis about like they've both now done these movies where sometimes you only get one shot done per day. Mm-hmm. And in these big creature sequences, there is that feeling of just like. God, the amount of shit they had to set up for that one shot, which is one shot in a three-minute sequence. And, like, Botine is, in, in many of these sequences, is building a different prop for every shot. You know, it has to look a different way. It has to function a different way. It's like each shot is one gag and a build just for that gag. And then things like famously in the defibrillator scene when his arms fall in and then he rips them off, they hired a double amputee for that one shot. So it's really a guy without arms. And then the special effect is that he's wearing a mask to look more like the actor. But as Carpenter says, no one looks at the mask because they're looking at the arms and the arms are real and no one can get past how we've hidden the arms. Mm. 
I, 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 that, I, that sequence is just so damn audacious. I think, yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm with Emily that it's like annoying to bag on, you know, to make CG the sort of easy villain, right? Like, cause that, that's sure. sort of what so much discourse about modern movies has become where it's like, oh, it's cause of the CG. But like, it's just that thing of like when you, where you can see the limitation and how hard yeah. everything is being pushed, it does. It just it it hits different. I, I it's well, basic it's, maybe, but yeah. What's frustrating about the 2011 movie is like I think their intent was to do something like what uh, uh, Guillermo del Toro often does, and especially with his lower budget movies, where it's like you put a guy in a suit and you use CGI really, really wisely and sparingly right. to make it more inhuman. And to remove rods and to remove, like, the excess parts of it and whatever. And then Universal just went overboard and kept on wanting to tinker it more and more and more to the point where they fully painted over everything. Right. Crimson Peak is the one where people were like, oh, I just hated those CG monsters. And they're not CG monsters. Right, But there's been, like, enough, I don't know, yeah, enough tweaking done that it becomes sort of difficult to distinguish. Yeah. I just think he tends to strike the right balance on his lower budget movies where it's like you put Doug Jones in a thing and you film that with a camera and you use CGI to like slim it out and carve things out and right. remove wires and rods and shit like that. Um, but there is something to the viscera of this movie. I mean, like apparently but Kurt Russell would walk on set and be worried about the thing looking cheesy. Uh, Carpenter would just go like, just, just wait until we put the goo on it. <laughs> you know and there's the the amount of fucking slime in this movie there's a lot of goo i mean oh man yeah this is like an incredible yeah the, slime the color too the color yeah. is so underrated it's like somehow grosser like and i feel like the remake from what i've seen of it the uh it's more human the the it's more blood and gutsy right it's more reds and purples and blues sure and like, it's wild when t- you, the guy's just fucking green. You know, like it's like weird green yeah. entrails are like spurting everywhere. The, uh, only, yeah. the only thing I can think of to compare it to is um, placenta. Like that, that yeah. is the feel of it. It's I, like something I was being say, it, born. It, it yeah. looks like tumors to me. Like when mm-hmm. you've seen like footage something, of tumors being removed and shit. Right, yeah. where it's like this is not human essentially. Like this is something that grew that wasn't part of the body. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, can uh, I say I've been on the record? I like snow crime. Man, do I love cold <laughs> slime! Wow. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, be- no, David. Yes, David. You can't, yes. You can't just ignore the fact, right? We get room temperature slime. Yep. We get uh-huh. hot slime, cold yes. slime, though. Yep. David, oh, you cannot I, just ignore I hate that fact. Room temperature slime. <laughs> the worst. Yeah. You know, snow crime and cold slime is a great title for something. I just want you to know <laughs> that and have that ready at, yeah. at the ready. Okay, definitely uh, for something. Yeah, like Double Dare. You just know that ter- that that set that game show set was room temperature. No, oh, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. Whew, I'm just. I I just. Do you got? Do you guys ever just watch clips of the thing? Because I course. do that a lot. Yeah, you know, of course. Just, you know, like let me let me spend some time with the spider today. The, the spider it, head. I, I just want to see it. Yeah, this it's is one about, of my go tos for that. Yeah, yeah. It's at the time we're recording this. It's about to come out on 4K in a steelbook. Yeah. I've still not been able to pre order because I keep on missing it. But I I'm so excited to have that fucking disc because like 
Total Recall is the other one that I put on and just watch certain sequences over and over again trying to figure them out. Mm-hmm. And this one, it's just like any two shots you can just frame by frame it and and just fucking live in it. Um, yeah, I mean, just I, I know we're jumping all around here, but like the order of like that defibrillator scene is, okay, chest opens up, eats his arms, arms rip off, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Then, like, the monster the comes out going, of the chest. Ah! Well, right. no, so the chest is the chest has turned into a big mouth that's hungry and has eaten his right. arms. Nom, right, nom. then it eats him. Sorry, then, yes. Then, but, but then the head starts to just sort of stretch off the body. Right. And you got a lot of green tendrils going. And then the head finally pops off and grows legs and starts uh, skittering around, but also coming out of the chest I was is gonna another say crazy head. Yes, yes. And that head sort of like poking on the ceiling and going like, Arr! and meanwhile, Kurt Russell is sort of looking at it going like, ooh, which is my favorite part. <laughs> like Kurt Russell isn't like, oh my God, burn that fucking thing right now. He's just looking at it like Jesus, like, yeah. which maybe that's the reaction you have, right? Where it's just sort of like your brain's like, you know what? Let's disable all higher functions. I, I find right? it realistic. Like, yeah. I think yeah, everyone yeah. just goes into complete shock in this movie. And it's like, as you said, Emily, there's a certain degree of awe for this thing, but there also is just the like, I can't process what is happening. And weirdly, that makes the horror more realistic than most films you've seen where people accept far too quickly, oh, there is a burn man who haunts your dreams. Yeah. And you're like, well, I guess that's Freddy's deal. You know, <laughs> there's the um, classic uh, fight or flight reaction, but there's also, you know, the freeze or fawn, the four F's. And like, this is a movie about people who freeze. Yes. They freeze and they don't know what to do. And then it's too late. And Kurt Russell's the one who figures out what to do just quickly enough to set something on fire. And these guys are just like, I mean, you have all the early scenes where it's like these guys barely talk to each other anymore, you know? Yes, right. They were all settled into their like Antarctic. They're sort of in hibernation, right? Because it's like, it's dark. And what I love though, like again, like a a whatever, a a fattier movie, whatever the opposite of a lean movie, it it would have more scenes of power struggle, like of like, Mm -hmm. well, you can't be in charge. And instead this kind of boils it down to like one scene and McReady becoming the sort of, you know, like, we're, we're, like there's the guy who's like, I, I can't do it, right? Like, he's like, oh, you should yeah. be in charge. Well, I can't do it. It's just sort of obvious that Kurt Russell's going to be. We know Kurt Russell's the guy. He's the mm-hmm. movie star. But also, he's just fucking, ex- like, wafting confidence, like, in His the way the others Mac are not. Yeah, he, he is he's, ready. He's, he do be ready. Yeah. He ready. Yeah. He ready. Um, but like, I just like that there's not like a lot of shoe leather over like, well, should the helicopter? No, come on. Like we get, you know, that's the, those, that's, that stuff is great. No. And that it's, power it's struggle great. scene like really happens pretty deep into the movie. I'm, unless I'm misremembering leads directly deep. into yeah, that yeah. No, defibrillator no, no, no. scene. Like you have that sort yes. of standoff with him in the, with the flamethrower, which then like he's sort of wrestling control. Where he's uh, got the dynamite, yeah. yeah. Where he's like, right. where he's all snowed up. Uh, what do we think of Snowy Kurt, by the way? Because he's also pretty cute. Oh, oh my god! I, okay, so warm that is, guy up. Yeah. This is the eye thing I want to say. We said that he's got very gentle, tender, right, pretty eyes, right? And he's he is a very pretty we're, man. We're saying, 
we're saying he has a twinkle dial somewhere on his body that he can sure. he can turn up and down. Yeah. yeah. But there's <laughs> something to just his eyes being so goddamn icy blue, especially when he's mm. just surrounded by brown hair, right? Like you have like this dark mane and this beard. There's so little flesh actually showing on his face. You're not really seeing his bone structure. So it's like this guy is just kind of like hidden. But then these eyes cut through in every single shot. And the colder he gets, the more covered in snow he is, the paler he is, the more hypothermic he is, the more his eyes pop. And like, it feels like he's turning down the twinkle, but it just innately gives him a level of humanity in any single scene. Because you like, there's just, there's an intrinsic vulnerability to the delicacy of his eyes. Right. There's the, you know, what what do we do when we try to figure out if somebody's trustworthy? The first place we look is their eyes. So like right, you look this in the eyes. movie yeah. needs a fucking good eye actor at its center. Yeah. And like that that's so key to everything. Like I feel there's a lot of scenes where his eyes are kind of just lit slightly better within the scene just so we can see them yes. more. And I, I think that that's a huge part of why this movie works. Because he's also so his pretty. Goggles. He's so pretty. Oh, his Damn, goggles. those goggles. His sombrero. I, yeah. Oh, his look, the fashion in this, but I just love when he pops those yeah. those goggles yeah. off and they're like on a chain, you know, like on a strap. Yeah, well you said chain first though. You like it cuz yeah. they're on a little chain. You like it cuz they're on a well, chain. Yeah, I also yeah. I mean also the introduction of him playing chess and then breaking the chess computer cuz it beats him by pouring yeah. bourbon in its guts. Um and he it's, doesn't uh, like to lose. It's Adrian Barbeau, yeah. It's as, Adrian as Barbeau. the chess computer, yeah. Um, um, but I just like that, where it's like, this, this, like, no one's fixing this chess computer. Like, this guy hates no, to it's lose so much. Right? Yeah. The, tech, the tech is so good. The scene where Wilford Brimley, like, figures out life on Earth is doomed with what appears to be, like, an Atari is great. Yeah, with, like, right. the weird sort of asteroids thing where it's like, brr, 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 right. brr, like, I love that. It's like he's playing Oregon Trail. Yeah. What program or, like, how, you know what I mean? Like, what was the fucking algorithm to lead yeah. him to that? Uh, I, know, I mean, uh, he coded thing- it in basic. Yeah, yeah th- sure, sure, sure. dos. Yep, that makes sense. Um, Brimley, by the way, and oh, what this Brimley. is like his fourth or fifth role or whatever. Like, I feel like yeah. the China Syndrome is his big breakout, and this is one of those movies where you're like, you know, actually, he's 14 years old. Like, you, you have no right. idea, but <laughs> like, you know, like, he's so good in this movie. Yeah. I love everyone in this. Everyone's good, right? Every and everyone's doing unshowy work, and that's part of the magic. Like I, I, I appreciate that. But I'd love just a whole movie of him in his cabin mumbling to himself, right? Like if we do like yes. a thing one and a half, a thing side equal, a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern thing where it's just like him grumbling. I, I could, mm-hmm. I, I just want to live in his grumbling. Well, there's the Wilford Brimley line thing, of course, which is when Cocoon reached theaters, Wilford Brimley was 50 years, nine months and six days. <laughs> and he's playing a grandpa and everyone else in the movie is like 30 years older than him. And you don't question it. So no, like no. there are, you know, the Brimley Cocoon line is its own Twitter account devoted to telling you which celebrity just passed the, the Brimley line any given day. And it's always uh, astounding. Martha Plimpton just passed the Brimley line. Uh, Tanya Harding. We love Martha Plimpton. Uh, uh, It was a little sad. Uh, Fred Durst recently, uh, as he's rebranding into uh, uh, whatever it is he's rebranding into. He sort of looks like the sheriff from Longmire now. Um, Uh (laughs) 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, it was a little sad, of course, when Brimley died. Yes, and the, and yeah. the, and uh, and he wasn't even that old. I mean, he was eighty-five. It's not like he was a young man. But you you want to read like, yeah, Wilfred Brimley finally popped yeah. it at the age of hundred and twelve, and you're like, yeah, of course he did. Like, right, but, guy but was hundred when, when he started in movies. I get it. When you see that, like a month ago. Uh, the lead singer of Bare Naked Ladies crossed the Brimley Cocoon line. That doesn't, that doesn't really process. Jeff Mangum from Neutral Milk Hotel. Uh, my point is, this movie is only three years before Cocoon. Mm. So he's like 47 in this movie. And it is incredible, the difference. He does not look young in this film, but this yeah. movie... His hair still has some color in it, and he doesn't have that big old push broom mustache. And when he shows up in Cocoon three years later, you're like, this man is 100. Someone please put him on life support. I think uh, I, I read there was uh, that they cast him because they were like, well, he's a great everyman. People will forget about him because yeah. we have to have him off the board for a while. And I think one thing that you can't do now that they could do in 82 is you always remember Wilford Brimley. Right. You he's always not, Now Weirdly, we're like, yeah. where's Wilford? Where's Wilford? Right. <laughs> Bring him back. Right. It's, yeah, back then they're like, yeah, there's like six guys in this movie who look like him. Right. It's no big deal if we take him out of the rotation for a bit. By, by the time I see this movie, I'm just like, how am I going to take the Quaker Oats guy seriously in a horror? <laughs> you know, it, like it felt like it was overpowering. Well, they did cut out the scene where he uses the computer program to diagnose everyone with diabetes. <laughs> I don't know. We <laughs> just we got to do some Brimley time. I mean, what's the next yeah. Brimley we're going to do? Right. We're not. Are we going to do freaking in and out anytime soon? Are we we, we should. The He's good in and out. He is. What's he bad? Firm. He's always He's good. great in the firm. He, re he really is always. I mean, the last thing I remember seeing him in was, uh, did you hear about the Morgans? Right, right. Which right. I have to imagine was one of his last films. And he was fucking good in that. And your brain short circuits when he shows up because it feels like uh, fucking... Peter Cushing showing up in Rogue One, where you're like, but how does he still look like this? He's yeah, like frozen in ember. Right. He started at a certain age, but he didn't really advance. He just stayed right. there. That, that was he, his genius. Right. He looks exactly the same age and did hear about the Morgans as he did in Cocoon. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, at the end of this movie, he turns into a gigantic monster that tries to eat everybody. Yeah, I also feel like Brimley is usually so gruff and sort of like strapped down and everything. It's nice to watch him have his fucking freakouts in his little timeout shed. Like Brimley, Brimley going wild is is fun. Oh, it's yeah, so and fun. That, that was a, a very poor selling spinoff of Girls Gone Wild, though, was Brimley going <laughs> wild. <laughs> it's like full of Brimley gags. I have to stop. It's mostly him warning people about diabetes. Right. Now you girls be careful. Don't eat too many sweet snacks. Yeah. It, it is wild to watch it. Right, because it's like China Syndrome's his first credited role. And then it's like Absence of Malice, mm -hmm. The Thing, Tender Mercies. Yep, good in Tender Mercies. Great performance. Yeah. The Natural... Oh, he's so good in The Natural. The Natural is one of those funny ones where he's the grizzled old coach and Robert Redford is the young player and they're like five years apart in age or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's uh, like when anyway. uh, another guy who died more recently than you would think, but uh, the Grandpa Monster. What was his name? Al Lewis? Who played Grandpa Monster? It was Al Lewis, yes. Uh, 
when when Al Lewis died, I think his family realized that he was like 20 years younger than they thought he was. And that Al Lewis faked his age in order to get hired as grandpa on the Munsters. He was like 35 and he told him he was 55. And so when he died, people were like, you're 98. And it turned out he was 78. Uh, Yeah. Following his cremation, his ashes were reportedly placed in his favorite cigar box. Hey. 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 Perfect. Anyway, Al Lewis rules. He's not in the thing. Are we going to talk about the plot of the thing? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Here's, Here's the plot of the movie. A spaceship crashes, right? Then yeah, some indeterminate it. amount of time later, bunch of men dead inside, burn out, tired of each other on an Arctic base that is never defined. We never know what these guys are doing or what they're there for, which I love. Yeah, yeah. We they're know they're from the U.S. Something. We know they're from yeah. the U.S. We know they're That's from the U.S., but doesn't matter. Because yeah. there's mm-hmm. this uh, Norwegian uh, camp. That we are introduced to uh, in a helicopter uh, shooting at a dog. (laughs) (laughs) They crash near the American base. The one guy gets out, uh, accidentally sets himself and the helicopter on fire, explodes it. The other guy won't stop shooting at the dog, shoots at them. They take him out. Now they have this dog. What the fuck happened to those Norwegians? It's pretty good. It's pretty good setup. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when they go to the base to uh, mm-hmm. find out what happened there, the giant ice thing they dug the uh, they dug the thing out of uh, appears to be uh, a gold belly order that someone has placed and had come. <laughs> like it literally looks like one of those insulated yes. coolers yes. they send you frozen yes. food in. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good. It's kind of like the same plot as Alien, uh, same approach as Alien, where it's like a little preview of all the freaky stuff that's going to happen. Yeah. In a, it, but everything's static. Where they're seeing a right. bunch of uh, horrifying things, but nothing's yeah. moving, and it's kind of just a little intro to the aesthetic of the monster. Love you know, that. We've been talking a lot about how that scene with the dogs and the tentacles coming out of the dog, like really, just seems like a. But like that, that creation in the Norwegian base, the mute, mutated man, the, the two face caught thing. in half. Yeah, uh, yeah, that yeah. that sets you up pretty well for what's coming. That is true. Yeah. I think there's something about the dog's face peeling so rapidly. Yes. I, I mean, yeah, the way it pops I, rather than I, there's I, no warning. Yeah, I rewound it three times, <laughs> and I've seen this movie before. But I rewound it three times because I was like, I know the gory shots coming, and when that shot starts with like five solid seconds of an animatronic dog head before it peels open, it's not like they cut to it right before the peel. You're right. watching an animatronic dog head with fur looking realistic and then suddenly it peels open. You go, wait, that was the robot the whole time? Like this was the special effect shot? It blows my fucking mind. But uh, yes, yeah. this dog uh, goes ham. It does. It goes ham, turns into a tentacle monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, Starts fucking with the other dogs. The other dogs start fighting their way out to escape. Right, and they eventually figure out that it can only be subdued with fire. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they realize they got a thing on their hands. They Wilford got a Brimley's thing. the one who figures it out. It, it, which, like, God, the way he just sort of... It's... These guys are worth their weight in gold. If you can get, like, sort of a fucking crusty old character actor to, like, deliver your mumbo-jumbo exposition like they resent it, you know, and just go, like, I don't know what to tell you. Seems like an alien. That would be a great career. 
That would yeah. be a great career to just be the guy who comes in and says, ah, God, I don't want to be here, but alien. David, you and I saw Shang-Chi this week and we were talking about how Tony Lung and that is like a fucking Vegas blackjack dealer every that time was they your, give him some Marvel That was your metaphor and I can't stop yeah. thinking about it. I mean, it helps obviously he's seated in the scene you're talking about, like sort of yeah. facing all of them like a blackjack dealer, right. but it really is the absolute calmness with which he explains how there was another character called the Mandarin in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right. Tony Lung, maybe the best actor alive, is handed this sort of like ham-fisted kind of like, look, we kind of got to paper over a few choices that were made a decade right. ago. Uh, can he kind of like, you know, deliver this with like, you know, adequate sort of soulfulness? And he's like, yeah, no problem. Right. Let me think yeah, about yeah. my father. And Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but maybe this whole thing's going to be about family, and it's actually going to kind of move you to tears. I put it into words as the blackjack dealer, but it's because you turned to me and you just did this motion with your hands, like <laughs> he's just like fucking like letting it just slide I, I, off. I him. think it was like exactly. He's just serving this up, and it's like right. the the there's no uh, shame or whatever in it, right? Like he doesn't right. seem embarrassed by the which, material. You're getting the same effect from Brimley here, which is so important that like the guy who now kind of sets the temperature of the movie saying like, this is an alien that can replicate other human beings mm. is able to do it with, with just the right level of like not playing the camp of it, but not being embarrassed by it either. You know? Uh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it's a thing. And what the thing thing does is it, uh, looks exactly like you, uh, if it, if you give it long enough, basically. Yeah. In between, it doesn't look anything like you. In between, it looks like the worst fucking shit you've ever seen in your life. But given enough time, it'll look like you. And it's magic. It's a magic premise. It's a premise, obviously, it's not, not like this movie invented it, but obviously it's just like the, 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 the pure simplicity of like, yeah, well, you could be the thing. Or right. I could be the thing. That's now, it. the classic debate here is, do they know their things or don't they know their things? And the answer, right. of course, is who cares? Yeah. Yeah. yeah right, right. But it's never really talked about because everyone behaves like they're supposed to until the moment they turn into a crazy monster. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Which the, the fact that it's unexplored makes it scarier because that's almost the most terrifying concept in the movie is what if I'm the thing and I don't realize it? It replicates you right. so perfectly that it replicates your mental state right before the thing takes over you. It's kind of what it's I mean, the ending is so perfect, but it's not just that they're like, well, maybe you still are the thing. It's like, or maybe I am. I don't know. Right. right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and that's why I think this movie is a trans text. We got there, everybody. Um, okay, let's do it. I'm going to do a couple. I'm going to do a couple readings on this and why I think it's a, a trans film. Um, so there is this thing um, that uh, uh, there I mean, is the, this. There is thing. this thing. I, I uh, resisted I, Griffin. You couldn't. <laughs> I can't resist. I'm going to take it every time. I'm going to take. I'm going to take a D. I'm going to take a detour into Ari Aster's okay. uh, uh, masterpiece, Midsommar. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a movie about a woman who goes on a trip with a bunch of men and like famously, they just kind of act like dudes around her. They're kind they kind of <laughs> act like they're hanging out with, you know, they're cracking open, open a cold one with the boys to use a meme. That's 10 years. Cause out it's of also, they, they don't yeah. fucking want her there. They don't want her there. She, so they're 
they're right. obnoxiously behaving in the way they right. want to behave on their right. bro trip to Midsommar. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right, yes. right. Carry and on. I saw I saw that movie uh, shortly after it came out publicly and was just blown away by it and was deeply moved by it. And I was like, why am I moved by this? And it is this thing of, God damn it. It is this, this, this theme of before you come out to yourself before as we call it in the community your egg hatches mm-hmm. you are frequently in spaces with other men and you're just like well what you perceive to be other men because you think of yourself as a man and you're just like what is happening none of this makes any fucking sense and we're all just kind of acting like it's absolutely fine and i am learning the customs i'm learning them through you know osmosis mm-hmm. and i think that the thing captures that feeling of being trapped in a space where you're not entirely sure if you are human, if you are someone that exists in this world, or if you are like some sort of deadly shapeshifter who needs to like go off and like make their head go off and become a spider. Um, I, I, but I think there is a flip side of this and this is the way I've always read this as a trans text sort of stemming from Midsommar again, as, as an example um, which is there's this this play called A Spy in the House of Men. It's written by a uh, trans woman whose name I forget. And the concept of it is when you are among men, you hear how men talk about women. And sometimes that is, you know, just I'm just blowing off steam about my goddamn wife, you know? Uh, when you Penny are, Sterling. Uh, yeah, yes. When you yeah. are <laughs> when you are among men. Uh, and they perceive you as a man. They talk about women in an unfiltered way. And when you figure out you are a woman, you also immediately figure out the ways that men have been talking about you all along. And it is fucking frightening because, yeah, some of us just blowing off steam and it's fine. But there's inevitably one guy who's just a little bit too angry, just a little bit too something. And you're like, what the fuck is going on here? And when it's just, uh, you know, the guys, you can kind of like laugh about it or whatever. But like when you realize what has been happening there there's a really unsettling thing about that. Um, I watched the first move. The first thing I reviewed after I came out to myself was um, not publicly after I came out to myself was the terror season one. Great television show. Glad I get to be the first one to mention it here instead of Karen Han, my nemesis. <laughs> um, but that is a movie about how when or a TV show about how when you have a group of men together in an isolated location, they're going to start murdering each other. And the thing is, <laughs> the thing is also about that. And it just really captures this feeling of not being quite in and of this group. This is a movie about outsiders within a group of men, both literally in terms of the monster of the movie, but also within the way the camera regards them as like, none of these people quite work. None of them quite make sense. They're all archetypes. They're all very strange and weird and flawed. And they're all kind of unknowable. I mean, the lack yeah. of backstory we're given, the the lack of sort of big emotional sort of catharsis scenes. Yeah. yeah. Something I always think about is that also whoever signs up for this job Mm-hmm. has something that yep. is going on with them, mm-hmm. which I think also it's like they don't even yes. lean into any of the backstory, but it's just, in, it's like inherent. You're like- It's implied, yeah. You're not going to sign up for are... It's true. Like, yeah, sure, I'll go to Antarctica for an end, uh, you know, indefinite amount of time. Sounds but, like an what? adventure. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's 11 other guys. Uh, sun doesn't rise in the winter. Yeah, that sounds cool. Within, I think, binary gendered environments, 
um, non-binary genders, of course, um, have this experience as well, but um, I'm not as familiar with them having been, uh, uh, being a binary person. Um, there is this sense of community that develops. And this movie is about a place where there's already no sense of community. It's very yeah. much a movie about, oh, men who don't want to be around each other. Everybody's kind of like, yeah, I, I, when I came out, um, I had some various agents and publishers be like, you should write a memoir. And I was like, I'm not going to write a fucking trans memoir. Everybody does that. And I, but then I kind of had this notion of doing a book that was a different essay about different horror films through a trans lens. And this was always the one that I was like, this is about what it means to be, to pretend to be a man and not actually be one. Um, the thing is about being a spy in the house of men, whether you take that to mean uh, that you are a thing or that you are watching how men behave in violent and destructive ways when they don't think, you know, that women are watching them. Um, and like, uh, I, I just, I have always related to that very hard before I came out. And after I came out, it made so much more sense to me. So the thing is trans, I've proved it. Now everyone has to give me cake. <laughs> All the cake to Emily, everyone please. Has to uh, give you that's cake. a great take. Absolutely. I, well, I, I just, I think the thing that I'm thinking about is Emily talks about is like how, Mm, so it's so true. I am thinking the about thing the you're thing you're thinking about is the thing. It is. Right, exactly. <laughs> is is how like no one ever really becomes friends or comes around to each other in this movie because no. they can't because yeah. you know the the distrust is always going to be there to the extent that like we're kind of rooting for. I mean, like also it's you know I'm a modern viewer and I probably first saw this movie whatever you know. Kurt Russell and Keith David are the people I'm going right. to gravitate to because I know them yes. best. Of course, yes. And so I am, I guess, quote unquote, rooting for them the most. But still, at the end, they're still not really. They have a there's a hint of a smile at the end, but that's the most you can give. And so they are throughout the movie. They 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 never can shed that that feeling of like, right? Am I myself? Am I? Yeah, like what I think I am, right? Like, or am I just pretending to be because that's what I'm supposed to do in this environment? Like that sort of weird liminal, like I, you know, like I, I just don't know if if this is real or. And then you know, you can do this to yourself all the time, also, where you're just like, you know, do I live in the real world or? You know, oh, I'm just I, sort of dreaming I mean, that the, I live in the, the real the, world. The yeah, thing I fucking uh, think about constantly. Uh, right. That uh, my my existential terror, but um. I, I, there, there are a lot of things in the soup with this movie. Obviously, like the the story in the original film come out of like early Cold War panic, right? And that idea of like, how well do you know anybody? People can be trying to assimilate amongst us, all that sort of thing. And then Carpenter has talked about that, like uh, the the AIDS crisis f figures into this movie oh, as yeah. well. Mm -hmm. Right, this fear of just like, oh, there's this silent killer out there now, you know, this thing that can be transmitted through intimacy, through proximity to people. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly in the early days, there was so much confusion about how it could or could not be transmitted. But this idea of here's this deadly thing and we don't know how we get it and you don't know who has it or not, you know? I think, um, I think Carpenter is accidentally a really good filmmaker about gender. Like he makes movies that have gender in like infecting them at every inch. And this movie is very much about how within uh, all male spaces, there is a fear of like intimacy. There's a, there's an attempt to be like, Oh, we're not actually that close. And like, you have to work to overcome that. Yeah. And then you never know, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I bring all this up just because, and I, I don't want to say I like, this is a great movie. I was excited to watch it again. 
but there was a part of me that was dreading the experience of watching it again because much as I predicted, this movie is like really it it hits much harder for me post COVID. Yeah. And I don't say post COVID as if COVID is yeah, I mean, over and done with. Right, right, I say right, post COVID right. as in uh, in a time where we've had to live through this to any degree. A, it's a movie about this weird sort of like broken uh, uh, seclusion. You know, these people living this kind of like closed off, isolated lifestyle uh, and sort of watching their personality and their sense of self die in isolation. But also this fear that like, you know, we we had this uh, somewhat like a horror movie, like false ending of just like, oh, everyone's getting vaccinated. Things feel good. I guess things can reopen. And at the time we're recording this, we're in this liminal state now of just the Delta shit and how much of a risk is this really and how much uh, is breakthrough cases a thing versus it only affecting the unvaccinated? What are we going to have to give up again in society or things going to stay open? Is that scary in its own way? And uh, yada, 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 yada. Uh, I do increasingly now after like a month where I felt like I was living my life with relatively limited anxiety, at least for me. I'm now back in this stage now where I have that sort of weariness anytime I look at another person in the flesh, you know, whether it's a friend of mine, whether it's someone I know well, whether it's someone I know casually, whether it's a stranger, you know, anytime someone walks into the grocery store and they're not wearing a mask and they get too close to you or you make social plans with somebody and you're operating on the faith that I, I guess we both really want to believe we don't have it, but that's a status that can change minute by minute, you know? Yeah. Even as recently as, like, I had to get tested twice recently. Man, what a fucking load off my mind to know I don't have it. And then that stops being up-to-date information a day later, an hour later, you know? All that is scary, and this movie taps into that into such a primal way where it's like AIDS was the manifestation of that at the moment that he is conceptualizing this moment, right? But, like, the form that COVID takes, this sort of viral pandemic uh is um much closer to i feel like what this movie represents which is just that like this kind of unseen invisible thing that's only going to reveal itself too late and it manifests itself and the distrust is the thing that has fucked up my brain more than anything in the pandemic where it's like there are people who are very close to me who i now fundamentally distrust and I have a fundamental distrust of strangers. And anytime I let someone get close to me, I'm scared that I'm making a fatal mistake. The the modern world is just designed to stoke paranoia. It's designed to make this you say, true. oh, my God, is this person vaccinated? Correct. Is this person not vaccinated? Social media, blah, 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 blah. But like. I do think about this in terms of Carpenter was clearly really fucked up by Reagan's election. Yes. And this is kind of a movie about like, who do I know that is secretly like plotting the destruction of everything I hold dear? Absolutely. Right. And then, you know, they live is the more satirical, goofy version of that. Um, but but it is a, a thing. I don't know. I just feel like. Uh, yeah, it's the thing. <laughs> it's the thing. 18 months of pandemic and then four months of my fucking health bullshit. And then I go back out into the world. And to some degree, it felt like, okay, I've been in like an Arctic base Mm -hmm. for the last 20 plus months. And now I'm cautiously trying to wonder in the way what is, as you said, the, the, the point 
of the ending of the movie is it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter if both of them are things or both of them are humans. The bigger point is they're going to spend the rest of their life not knowing whether to trust anything or anybody for the rest of time, right? Mm -hmm. There's the point in the movie in which the stakes become not do we survive this, but how do we make sure that this thing doesn't escape and spread because Brimley's done his fucking calculations and factored in how much time it would take for this to take over the entire planet. And so there's a certain degree of self-preservation, but there's also this degree of like, we might be the last stop. Well, they're and that's what they struggled so much with the ending because it's like, how heroic can you make it? Like, should they defeat the thing? Right. Should they get wiped out? The, obviously, they come up with the perfect ending, which is basically like the two of them sitting there being like, "We're probably being heroes because we're probably going to die." Right? Like, right? That's right. like that's where it concludes. Where it's like, well, so I think we're both okay, and the whole place is on fire, and we're probably going to die here. And that's good, unless you're the thing. Like, and and it's sort of like, let's just wait. Like, it's a it's a perfect thing. Uh, the thing yeah. is a perfect thing. Sorry, carry on. Go ahead, Emily. Sorry. <laughs> I I think that uh, 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 slipped my mind. I'll I'll come back to it. I'll have it. I'll have it. Uh, I'll 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 stall for a moment and say that uh, Carpenter considers the video game to be canon. And in the video game, apparently, which is a sequel, takes place after the events of this, the beginning of the game, there is some text on a computer screen that says that they were rescued and mm-hmm. McCready survived and uh, what's him? Childs is the uh, Keith David character. Mm-hmm. I believe dies of hypothermia, but it does prove that he's human. And sure. so Carpenter has said, like, I didn't write that, but I accept that as canon. There's a thing also in the 2011 movie that uh, they realize a character is the thing or is not the thing. I forget because the the thing can't replicate the earring because the thing can't sure, replicate. It's, it's organic. Inorganic not, matter. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So some people look to that and the fact that Keith David still has his earring at the end of the movie as proof that he is human but then also other people say they've replaced the j and b scotch bottles with gasoline so maybe the bottle that kurt russell hands keith david is filled with gasoline and the fact that he drinks it and it goes down easily but you don't see kurt russell drink it proves that he was testing him and that he as a thing doesn't know that that's not how like you can spiral out in a thousand different you directions can do here. That. and the point and, is and i understand there's a right. it's all it's, interesting it but it fundamentally doesn't matter the question is the point um I I love I love a scary movie or I love any movie where everybody realizes we all have to die like this is a thing we all have to die to save the world this is a thing and uh, yeah I've been trying to think of other my other favorite examples of that but yeah it's uh, um, because the thing is they remake the thing on TV so much because it's a perfect bottle episode it's perfect we're in one location. Yeah, famously X Files. We're, did we're it for talking ice. about ice, right? Which is yeah. the best. I yeah, mean, and, there's a Futurama uh, one too. There's a Futurama episode that's like Murder on the Orient Express plus. Yeah. Yes, there's a Doctor Who. There's one. a Doctor Who one. But like, what I think about that is on TV, you have to say, "Okay, we saved the world, and everyone's fine," because you have to go on and Mulder and Scully have to save right. the day next week again, and like. I don't know something about the bleakness of this. I get why it didn't hit people in '82, but it's it's the only appropriate response to the world this film sets up and the world we live in, arguably. Right, the ongoing world. Uh, I I agree. Uh, it, it's just it's such a it's such a fertile concept, and and the thing that uh, that this movie <laughs> was able to do is for the first time actually visualize that. You know. 
Like yes. there are there are things like the monsters on Maple Street or what's it called? The monsters are coming to Maple Street Twilight Zone are are due on Maple Street, I believe. Ooh, yep. It, it's playing with similar things, but it, you just have to live in that space of one of these human actors might secretly be a monster. We're never going to be able to reveal them. Right. You can't have the in-between part. The, the, this, this movie is like, well, let's show the in-between part. And by right. the way, it ain't right. so nice. Yeah. Right. Right. This is, and that this, just adds a whole other level to it. This is kind of a body snatcher movie, but also kind of not. So it plays off the paranoia of the body snatcher genre, but like yeah. also gets at it, this added layer of you never know. You know? It's also it's, fascinating that the original Body Snatcher and the original thing from Another World come out very close together, and this comes out only four years after the Kaufman Body Snatcher. And Griff, I don't know if you noticed, but in the dossier, JJ found this quote where he disses the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which interesting, a rare bad take by Carpenter. But yeah. and of course, this is at the time, so it's a pretty fresh movie. And he says, like, when I saw it, I thought, why did he do this? The original was so much better and showed so much less. Yeah, which is an interesting note considering his the thing shows lots, but so much. his sort yeah. of defense is like in terms of remaking the thing, I had it easy because I wasn't trying to remake it because mm. you know his argument is really like I'm kind of just the doing the story yeah. right, right, and the the Hawks movie is its own thing, but it's just funny because I love the Kaufman movie. The Kaufman movie Same. is great, but that's Rolls. about. Um, it's sort of the opposite of the, you know, this movie, it's you're isolated, you're trapped, you know, all the stuff we've been talking mm-hmm. about. The whole brilliance of the Coffin movies is happening in plain sight in a big crowded city. And it's right. just about that feeling of like, wait, do I not trust anyone on earth? Like, do I, do I just feel completely unmoored from like how society works? Like everyone's, yeah, I mean, I love that movie. But that's, and the effects they, are really they cool. live. They Live is his Body Snatchers movie. Totally. Yeah. And They Live fucking rules. So John Carpenter wins again. Um, yeah, he wins. Double win. Uh, <laughs> a few other things I want to just throw out from the dossier. He wanted to film in black and white. Uh, Universal that would, would been, not let that him. That would be great. <laughs> right. But then his thing was like, cool. So then I'm going to have this thing be so devoid of color. I want everything yeah. so drab and bland so that when the thing shows up in any manifestation, whether it's it green tentacles really or right. red dog head or whatever, it really, really pops. And so a lot of it is just done with lighting and a lot of the lighting in this movie, most of it is the natural lighting of the the actual spaces they're filming in, but also lighting it with the flares that the guys carry around and shit like that. Um, it's also just, it's one of those things like watching the 2011 movie after this where uh, horror movies are not, especially studio films, comfortable being this quiet for this long. Mm, and right. usually they'll only be this quiet in the buildup to a jump scare. But like the lack of sort of unnecessary dialogue you know the lack of an overbearing score the fact that the score is more tonal rather than like underscoring the scares specifically the score isn't doing the usual hollywood movie thing of kind of alerting you to right the scare rhythms right like where it's right, like okay right. we're building up to something it's yeah. mood setting and even you know morricone is trying to find a tone closer to what Carpenter has done in his earlier scores, but Carpenter's earlier scores are a lot more propulsive and aggressive, you know? And this is a lot more... A a big theme, a good, you know, chunky theme. We love This is sort of a a slow, simmering uh, score, uh, which really fucking works. I was watching this movie. Uh, It's hot right now. We're in the middle of the summer. 
I had my AC blasting and I was like, the AC is taking away from the movie. And I watched it with headphones because I was like, I need to be like totally in this sound space in the silence of this movie. And it did make a big difference for me. Definitely. Definitely. Speaking, speaking of the technical elements, I think Dean Cundy uh, shoots fire on ice so well, obviously fire and darkness, but there's something primal in us. That's like, Oh, fire in the cold. I want to go sit by the, and like, I think Dean Cundy captures that. That last scene is just beautiful. Like in it a is. weird haunted way. Yeah. Yeah. It <sighs> this movie fucking rolls. It really does. Have y'all ever checked out any of the se- any of the sequel materials um, other than the video game? There was a uh, mini series that was scripted by Frank Darabont, and the script of that bounces around the internet every mm-hmm. so often. It's set in like a little New Mexico town that gets like infected by the thing. It's actually pretty interesting. Like I don't think it would have been a great mini series. I'm glad they didn't make it, but it wouldn't have been bad. You know, I right. feel like this was yeah. the return of the thing, which was. Yeah. Almost happened in 2005 for the Sci-Fi Channel. Yeah. Um, the other, the one thing I do want people to check out is uh, a Peter Watts story called The Things. Um, it's a sci-fi short story. It is basically telling this movie from the point of view of The Thing. And it's a movie, it's a movie, it's a story about assimilation and conversion. It's basically about religious proselytization. The Thing is like, oh, I just want everyone to know the joy of being mini part of the mini and um, it's horrifying and unique and really cool. And it's available online for free. So people yeah, should check can, it out. If you just Google it, it's right there. It's not long. Uh, it looks really cool. Won the That's Shirley Jackson award thing. I mean, now that they're like threatening to, I guess Blumhouse and Carpenter are working on trying to do some new thing, but it's like, I would much rather see an expansion than a sort of retread of this same I, story. I don't disagree with you, Griffin, but I will say I'm kind of getting sick of the expansions uh, uh, in general. You know, the, the, this sort mm-hmm. of thing now where it's like, we need to remake the movie Thanks. kind of, but ha- yeah, well, uh, but have it connect to the original in some sort of plotty way. You know, uh-huh. I mean, the worst version, obviously, just being literally like, oh, Ray is Palpatine's granddaughter or whatever. But you know what I mean? Like, but no, even no, these no, no, smaller... No, no. Re- that was good. That was good. Oh, you're right. That was good. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're totally right. Uh, but like this... I almost, and maybe it's just a reaction to the the dominant trend where I'm like, just do the trashy thing again and make a bad well, remake. But, but like, well, sure. You know, <laughs> right? But have either of you read about the, the new Predator movie that Dan Trachtenberg is doing? Uh-huh. No, no, I have not. It is, a, it is apparently about the Predator versus a Native American tribe. So it's like uh, set hundreds of years ago or whatever? Right, which I think is kind of interesting to just go like, we need to just put the Predator in a radically different environment in the same yeah. way that like a Darabont, oh, the thing comes to a New Mexico town. It's just like, th- let's use the larger spook and just put it into a totally different setting is a little more compelling to me. I the think Darabont, thing- Darabont reused a lot of that for The Mist, which is... The Mist feels very thing-esque, yes. It's kind of his best movie. Uh, yeah. the, the, the Predator, he, he he can put that fucker anywhere. Because it's like, what does the Predator do? He, he hunts people. Like, where? Anywhere. Right. They're aliens. They have spaceships. They can go wherever they want. So well, that, I mean, that I'm was, cool with that. That sounds cool. What was compelling about the Shane Black pitch that then sort of got beaten out of it was the idea of like, oh, it's the Predator in the suburbs. Like it being right. such an incongruous place to drop a Predator. 
I mean, there's definitely a good movie in that Shane Black movie. It's just, you know, that hey, movie's obviously really messy. Release the what? black cut. Release the black cut. Yeah, yeah, sure. Can I try to very quickly, I think this is worth it, do a merchandise spotlight? Wait, yep. wait, wait. I had a pitch for okay. my take on the thing. Okay. 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 Because I was like, I, li- I was liking your like your train of thought, David, of like just keeping it like instead of the expansion, right? Just like remake the thing. Sure. But here's the here's the difference. This time, mm-hmm. it's a bunch of dogs working in Antarctica, and then there's, you know, you just f- switch it. The humans so being just, chased oh, in the snow. Oh, there's one human. There's, right. Right. There's right, like okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> Sure. I that, do. I do see what you're saying. Do you have anything more than that, or that, that's where it left? That's, that's a good starting point. I think it's a good starting point. This is a movie, if you're going to remake it, doing the gender-flipped remake would be interesting. I don't know if yeah. it would work, but it would yeah. be interesting. Yeah, It would be interesting. I don't think anyone would have any objections to that, and there wouldn't be some like weird backlash where people yeah. claim they always Absolutely. cared about no, how male would, the thing right. was. People would love it. Yeah, people would love There's it. There's one thing um, we know about Ghostbusters. It's that they're boys. The number one most important thing. Like we can't, we can't let go of the fact that that was the complaint. It's like, well, Ghostbusters have always been boys. There's only look, boy ones. Look, I also, I'm not trying to start shit here, but I remain flummoxed by how few people are outraged by the fact that the Ghostbusters are now kids. <laughs> they should be outraged, kids. I, I don't no. get them out of here. No, right. grown-up no. Ghostbusters only. Because if you ask me, what what is the defining characteristic of a Ghostbuster? A cranky grown-up. Boys, <laughs> boys are priests and they're Ghostbusters, and I know that's f- true. And only. I don't want that to change. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay, I'm gonna try to do this merchandise spotlight thing quickly because there's a thing I'm setting up here that I think is gonna pay off. Okay. I weirdly brought this up the last time. Not the last time Emily was on, but in the Sons of the Lambs episode. But uh, uh, Todd McFarlane kind of like revolutionizes collector action figures in the 90s because he wanted to make his own Spawn toys because he thought all the other toy companies were lame. So he made his own shit. And then he was trying to figure out how to branch out into other toys that, uh, you know, kids companies were afraid to make. Right. And so he said, like, there are all these movie characters that uh, they're one cool looking character in a movie that couldn't support an entire action figure line. What if I collect all of those licenses? So he does this series called movie maniacs. That was like monsters, horror characters, things that no one else is making. And you put them all in as like a potpourri in one line. So he does it's Freddie and Jason and Leatherface, And then weirdly, because it was topical at that point, two of the characters from species Two, Right. And it's hey. huge. Suddenly, it's one of the like top 10 best-selling toy lines in America. So now he's got this thing, and it's like, oh, it's an anthology line. You put the best characters in. He's got a in. thing. Yeah, the thing. He's got a thing. Series 2, Chucky, uh, The Crow, Ghostface, Michael Myers, Norman Bates, right? These are Ghostface all kind of like- Killer? No. From Scream. Ghostface Scream. from Ghostface. Scream. Oh. Oh, and, then, okay. and then Pumpkinhead, who's kind of an odd pick, but that's just like, well, it's just a cool-looking monster, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, this is the thing I want to set up. So Series 3 he goes a little bit hog wild, right? And Series 3 is interesting because we've covered most of these movies or characters, and the ones we haven't covered, it's very possible that we will eventually get to them, okay? So Series 3, he does the thing. He does two different sets of the thing. He does one of the creature coming out of the body with the spider head, and uh, he does another one of the final monster. 
which I guess is the Wolford Brimley uh, yeah, Wilford mutation, Brimley, right. right? Then he also does Snake Plissken. So it's like, oh, you're not doing just like monsters and stuff now. You're doing kind of like badass R-rated heroes, right? Cronenberg's uh, uh, the fly. Sure. The final form. Another big gross thing. Right. Edward Hands, like, okay, sure. like, yeah, a monster, a gentle monster, but what have you. Uh, Ash from the Evil Dead franchise. Uh-huh. And then I, I just want you to, like, I, I want three guesses quickly of, like, think about the icons of these types of films and, like, who do you think, oh, it's weird they haven't gotten around to that character yet. Take a guess. Who the last character is, and I'll give you a hint. It is a movie we have covered on the podcast. Oh, wow. Okay. Is, is this Hannibal podcast. Lecter? It is not. Everyone wanted Hannibal Lecter, and Anthony Classic Hopkins choice. did not give up right. his likeness rights. It is didn't it, happen uh, for another 10 years. I know we haven't covered this, but it's not, so it's not like The Exorcist. It's not nothing from The Exorcist. It's not. Seems like another Reagan also, right. there were rights issues for a while, end up happening about 15 years later. Ben, do you want to take one guess? Was it Fletch? Ben, you are the closest, I would argue. <laughs> Damn it, I was hoping he was correct. <laughs> the final action figure in series three of Ma- Movie Maniacs is Samuel L. Jackson as Shaft. <laughs> hey! Whoa, though. Samuel Jackson is Shaft. Yep. Yeah. Is it the grumpy older version of him that doesn't like, like, you know, soy milk and right. you know, live streaming? Doesn't like streaming? eating ass. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, Samuel it's 2000 John yeah. Singleton Shaft. How weird is that? Why not Richard Roundtree? Why not an original good Shaft? But I also just find it fascinating. Like, we've done Edward Sister Hands, we've done Shaft. We we've done Pliskin, we've done the thing, and it's very very possible that we, if not likely, that we do the fly and Ash someday. I mean, uh, fly, yeah, the fly is a, the fly is a movie about uh, gender transition, so uh, I'll be back for that. Okay, and I mean, the, the, yeah, has been claimed. Actually, all uh, of Cronenberg's movies are about gender. Transition. I mean, I was about to yeah. say right. It's not. It's yeah. not. Cronenberg does a lot of body stuff. Yeah. yeah it's, what, what the uh, fuck is this flesh prison? <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Um, Box office. Game. Okay. Well, the shaft. I, I think that was up. worth shaft it for that reveal. Movie right? made. No, of course it was. Griffin. People love That's the funny. merch spotlight. I'm looking at it now. You should make some merch spotlight merch. I want to so badly. Mm, interesting. Um, okay. It looks good. Like it looks just it like, Samuel look Jackson, looks like Samuel Jackson. But it, it's looks just good. a man in a trench coat with his hand in his pocket. He's got his hand right there, though. All right. <laughs> yeah, it's right so there. So this this movie comes out as uh-huh. we've noted um, on June twenty uh, third. Is it? Or wait, okay. um, it's you know late June. Sorry, wait. Uh, let me look it up actually because now I'm forgetting. Uh, June twenty fifth, nineteen eighty two. Mm-hmm. And it did come out, as you noted, Griffin, the same week as Blade Runner, which seems like mm-hmm. a mistake to me. Yep. yep. I would say. <laughs> um, neither of those films opens at number one, though, because number one at the box office is what? E.T. E.T. E- it's E.T. Making yeah. $13 million in its third weekend Just in a 1982. Train. Just a freight train. It was the highest Just movie of all time. absolutely outrageous. It sure E.T. was. E.T. is a good movie. E.T. is a staggering work. It is the fucking best. E.T. for me is one of those undeniable objects where I just don't want to hear anything bad 
I, I don't I, I don't want to hear anyone's criticisms. It's Every time I perfect. see that movie, I'm astonished yeah. it works. I'm just like, this yeah. is so good. It's true. How does it shouldn't exist? really work. Uh, no, by the work. end, you just want to yes, uh, die of crying. That's how like I feel. like a decade ago. I saw like a screening of it at Dumbo Park where they like projected it in the middle of the summer, and I was sitting on a towel with my friends and sure. the towel next to us was like a dad with like a two or three year old daughter, maybe three or four. And she starts obviously losing it when E.T. goes like pale, right? It's not good. We don't like mm-hmm. him. And he just, to his his daughter, the way he reassured her was he went, don't worry, honey, everyone cries this much when they watch this movie for the first time. <laughs> and I thought like that's E.T.'s such a profound okay. thing to say. Right. Oh, geez. He was just like, nothing, nothing unusual <laughs> is happening. This is the common response. <laughs> We've all been there. E.T. good. E.T. E. won. Blade Runner number two. Okay. Uh, it's also one? interesting in terms of the reputations changing and growing for these two movies. Blade Runner has to be like re-edited and re-perceived like three or four different times mm. to become yeah. an undeniable classic. The thing is just like completely unchanging and everyone just comes around to it. Blade Runner has a similar like long running debate about it too. That's like, oh, yes. is he a replicant? And yeah. that doesn't uh-huh. matter. Yeah. And like doesn't matter. Yeah. Doesn't matter. That's so the point. similar. It's weird. Doesn't doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if the top falls over. Doesn't matter whether Decker's a replicant or not. Doesn't matter if either of them are things. That's the whole point. The uncertainty is the point. Right. I, but I just love that Harrison Ford the whole time was like, "What? He's not a replicant. Fuck you." Anyway, Scott's like, "I think he is. I don't know. He seems really worked up about it." Like hell, uh, I am. Yeah. number three at the box office is a film from one of our one of our favorite guys um Hmm. uh guy we've covered uh, we've never covered him because he's made one billion movies uh he is of course the director and star of this movie it's one of the many movies he's the director and star of it's clint eastwood but that ain't much of a clue because he's made a lot of movies (laughs) is it it tightrope it's not Tightrope, which he did not direct, although he ghost-directed that movie. Fuck, um, right. well, Go is ahead, it, Emily. Uh, what was your choice? Is it High Plains Drifter? It's not High Plains Drifter, mm. which is a great movie. Um, but no, it is a movie that the... now... Okay. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, 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 no. You go ahead. Well, I'm going to give it away, but uh, so I'm if gonna, you have a guess... No, we're going we're gonna to get this. We're going to get yeah. this, oh, okay. Sure, yeah. sure. It's Firefox. It's a... It is Firefox. I was about Whoa! to say it shares shares the name of a famed internet browser. <laughs> wow. It is Clint Eastwood. Nice work, Emily. Um I don't even fight, know what that movie's about. It's about like a futuristic new plane that he's going to fly. Fuck. Uh, it sounds like, like a, a cool, great movie. It does. It's one of the few Eastwoods I've never seen, and I've always been like, that one's probably pretty good, right? <laughs> like, yeah. uh, a pilot uh, is sent into the Soviet Union on a mission to steal a prototype jet fighter that can be partially controlled by a Neuralink. Correct. It's controlled by thought. Fuck. Uh, Firefox. Fuck. I, and it's just I, one of those things where I'm like, Clint Eastwood directed this, but he sure did. <sighs> I just wrote a piece for Vox.com about uh, Clint Eastwood and James Gunn having weirdly similar vibes. And like, Hmm. I looked at all these Clint Eastwood movies and every one of them I hadn't seen. I was like, that sounds like it might be pretty good. And like this man directed the 1517 to Paris, which is another movie where I'm like, that was awful. So 
I know he can make shit, but I'm just like, I want to watch them all. But he, but uh, when he makes a bad movie, it is mind warpingly strange. Yes, it's not like correct. It's like phoned <laughs> correct. in, right? Even right. though like everyone's like the guy basically phones it in at this point, but you're like, I don't know, man. No one makes movies like it. Yeah, but it's also like he's got some wacky Nickelodeon phone. It's not like a normal phone. <laughs> He's got a hamburger phone. <laughs> He's got a hamburger phone. Um, do you know what the original title was for Firefox? I don't. Fly Macho. What's number four at the Whoa. bottom? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hot okay. one, Okay. Okay. Here we go. One. We're settling down. Number four at the box office is one of the biggest hits of the year. It's a sequel. It's a good movie, uh, Rocky in my 3? opinion. It's Rocky Three, directed mm. by Sylvester Stallone. You guys got to Sylvester Stallone. Starring you guys got to do Stallone. Do Stallone. We do got to do Stallone we, or we do the Rockies. We put Stallone in March Madness. He I, did. I he think... was in March Madness. Yeah. We, and we put Rocky in March Madness. We gave him two bites of the apple. I think we need to do Rocky on the Patreon first because it would be tough to do Stallone without doing Rocky. I think but I guess right. we could also just fold Rocky into a Stallone series because, like, why not? I guess, right? Just you do, know, the, do the bonus episode first. Do the Rocky yeah, bonus right. Like, first. It's because right. it's if, if you do Stallone, it's Paradise Alley, right. Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Staying Alive, Rocky 4, Rocky Balboa, Rambo, and The Expendables. That's his directory. Yeah. No, we, we uh, would do we would do like the, the Nora Ephron thing where the first episode but, is Rocky. And you have to do First Blood. Not Maybe not the other ones, but you have to do First Blood as well. But see, to. then I think no. Then I think what you do is you put Rambo on Patreon. But he did yeah, one that, of that the, might well, be good. Yeah, that might be good. Yeah, that might be, be good. Real he never good. no. He never directed a Rambo, did he? Did okay, he? Did so he? then that's cool. no. He did. I'm My, sorry. He directed the gross fuck, fourth he directed, one. Yeah, right. That fucker. Right. That fucker. <laughs> How dare he? It's um, so weird which ones he decides to direct like, and which ones one. he doesn't. Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna direct Rambo four. All right. Right. Uh yeah no the, he did Rocky's two Rocky two three four six you know yes correct he left five um, <laughs> he directed Rambo four but not five and not one through three and then directed no. Expendables but then passed over the sequels to other people he sure did he sure did. and they're making another sure one of those did. now aren't they what a, what a guy what a guy uh, well, number you, five you forget the announced Expendabellas which Yas no, Queen. I don't want to put it in my that. veins. Big. Mood. I don't know what that is, but I don't want to talk about it. Big mood. Girl bosses. Expendables have always been boys. No, no, Emily. Now they're <laughs> girls and they're Expendabellas. Uh, number five of the box office is another sci-fi sequel. That's a big hit of the year. We did a Patreon episode on it recently. Uh, Patreon it? episode on it recently. Star Trek Two. It's Star Trek. Oh, Star Trek Two. The Wrath of Khan. And number six at the box office, Griffin, is the first film I ever saw in a theater. What is it? Fuck. You told me this. I did. But it was, you saw it as a re-release. It, it, was, being, movie, right? it was being re-released or as a rep screening or something. Is it no 101 idea Dalmatians? It, no, it is. No, the whole reason it's weird is that it's a weird movie. It's John Huston's Annie. <laughs> the movie of tomorrow. Jeez. Oh, that was like right. the movie of tomorrow. Didn't that make a yeah. fair amount of money? It was a considered a flop because it was so expensive. It was a ridiculously expensive movie, but it did make money. It just was uh, kind of you know didn't make enough money. But uh, mm -hmm. it's it's it is totally worth seeing. It is so there's so much money on the screen because it's yeah. like old ass John Huston just being like, "What do you mean you can't build a set? Build a set for everything, you know? Like it's these crazy sets. Albert Finney, 
you know, munching the scenery. Carol Burnett, obviously. It, there's a lot of good stuff in Annie. Annie's good. It's it's just so funny to imagine like that 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 Daniel Plainview voice motherfucker directing people on the set of Annie. <laughs> Seriously, the little orphan's gonna. She's gonna. Her dreams are gonna come true in this scene. All right, I want more joy in this tap dance. <laughs> uh, you've also got Poltergeist at number seven mm-hmm. and the thing opening at number eight behind everything Ooh. we just mentioned. Not good. Brutal. Uh, it is opening above the uh, Hal Needham movie Megaforce, starring Barry <laughs> Bostwick and Persis Kambata, the duo. Numbers wow. A it's and great. B, <laughs> letters one and two, Bostwick wow. and Kambata, they're together wow. finally. The tagline for Megaforce, there has never been a superhero like Ace Hunter. That is the tagline. I mean, this is true. Been. Uh, Megaforce, uh, if people don't know it, it's famous. It's a Golden Harvest movie that was built for the American audience. Like it's uh, Golden Harvest, the famous uh, studio from Hong Kong, is trying to make a Hollywood movie. And they made a movie called Megaforce. Anyway, I've never seen it. I've always thought about wow. watching it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it sounds interesting. It does. Uh, but yeah, the thing, yeah, it didn't do well. But, you know, what are you going to do? Ooh. 1982, guess, they're wrong. I guess, yeah, I guess you're just going to have to sit around and become an established classic just by fucking uh, waiting. Yeah, they were right it, about E.T. in 82, but they were wrong about this. Right. But of course, what's, what wins Best Picture? Uh, Gandhi, the Gandhi. best makeup of 1982. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it is what it is. Um, well, Emily, thank you so much for coming you're on welcome. the show, for throwing down the hammer and once again demanding uh it's uh no no one takes over the show by force uh, as well as you do <laughs> um, i uh i'm putting my i'm putting my chips down calling my shot uh midsummer episode 2029 i'm doing it sure and the I'm fly you've it. already put your chips let's, down for yeah, fly let's fucking do it yeah that let's sounds good i uh you need you need to let me know when you're covering some real pieces of shit coming up because that's i gotta do that next that's <laughs> right. my next thing right. what's the I need to, right i'll keep my eye out for real stink bombs right <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like horrendous like what's what's the next movie we're gonna cover that has a fudder whacking in it oh god <laughs> well, those are tough to come by griffin they're tough to come by in this economy a fudder whacking in this fudder wagons they're like fucking haley's comet it's like once every 80 years or something that heinous um, uh, yeah. Emily, people should follow you on Twitter, a hell Twitter? site filled with demons. Twitter.com slash Emily Um, you can read my writing at Vox. Uh, I'm just going to plug everything. That's what I'm going to do. It. Plug it I all. got so much You're shit allowed. to plug. Um, read all my stuff at Vox. I have a podcast at Vox called, uh, what to watch. It's in the thing called Vox quick, quick hits. It's just Alyssa Wilkinson and I goofing around every week for about oh, yeah. 15 minutes. That's a good, uh, time. you can and should listen to my scripted podcast. Arden. We just, we finished our second season in late 2020. We have a short mini series coming up in November, December, um, two women solving crimes, falling in love. Very proud of it. We've won awards now. So like I get hey, to be sure like, have. hey, award-winning podcast. Um, you also could read my newsletter, which is at uh, emilybdw.letterdrop.com. My book is Monsters of the Week, the complete critical companion to the X-Files. And please don't sleep on my recent Grammy-winning album of the year, the third time I've won that. It's Folklore. It came out last year. It's very good. <laughs> it's a good one. It's a good one. Uh, uh, yeah. you're, you're the best, Emily, and it's Thank always you. a pleasure. I love um, coming here. I love talking to you guys, and uh, I want to do it again, but I want it to be for a terrible movie. Yeah, we'll, we'll run some titles by you soon. 
Uh, and thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media. Thank you to J.J. Bursch and Nick Lariano for our research. A.J. McKeon and Alex Barron for our editing. Uh, Pat Reynolds, Joe Bowen for our artwork. It keeps on getting longer. Uh, Leigh Montgomery and the Great American Novel for our theme song. Uh, you could go to blankies.reddit.com for some real nerdy shit and go to patreon.com slash blank check for blank check special features where we do commentaries on franchises, maybe Rambo someday. Uh, but right now we're, we're spelunking in the dark with Riddick. Um, also there, uh, what we're doing, we're filling in some of the Carpenter TV movies, Elvis and, uh, someone's watching me primarily. Tune in and next maybe week. other stuff too. Everyone's like, we definitely won't. Wait, we'll see. We'll see. We'll try and figure it out. Okay. There's a we lot of stuff. Know. Yeah, we, we don't, don't know. We don't know. I mean, I'm gonna say something now that's gonna stress you out the moment I say it, but I have to. Uh-huh. We Fair have enough. look, it's been a weird year. There's been a lot going on. We have yet to really contend with how we're gonna talk the walk this year. I look, Griff. I've been thinking about that. You're not stressing me out. You're wearing the shirt. Know, You're wearing the shirt I, right now. I am. I don't know what the answer is there. I don't maybe either. Maybe we should have a little a little combo hey. with JD or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, we need to also we need buy to... the shirts because we have oh, a yeah. lot of them left. Yeah, <laughs> buy the talking the walk shirts. We might come up with some deal. You guys don't want you know you're not interested. What's up? You don't want a, a snowman that JD drew? We'll come deal, up guys? with a deal, Ben. We'll come up with a deal. We're gonna have yeah, a really yeah. hot deal. Uh, tune in next week for Christine. That's right. A movie that for me presents the most terrifying concept in the world. <laughs> what if a car existed? Hell yeah. Watch Stay out. Stay tuned for our guest to a car. Oh, you're talking to a vroom, car? Vroom. <laughs> honk, honk. I, uh, I think, I think I just, I got to pitch this, you guys on this bicentennial man, bring in my wife and I do Chris Columbus. You're going to love Fuck. it. Fuck. Uh, fuck. Well, you're just I mean, naming one of the worst man. movies ever yeah. made. Yeah. One of the most cursed yeah. movies Listen, ever made. We have already right. done an episode of podcasting about Bicentennial Man, and she jokingly said I should try to be on every movie podcast to cover Bicentennial Man, and now I'm holding her to it. She only said it to me, but I'm making it public. So That's a great bit. We cover The Christmas Chronicles 2, but not yes. one, because weirdly yes. he didn't direct the first one. Wait, I'm <laughs> sorry, of- What? Chris Columbus only directed the second Christmas Chronicles. He produced both. Uh, Chris he swung Columbus. swung in to direct Chris Columbus. Dur- this is the first I'm hearing of this. Directed the yeah. Christmas Chronicles part two. That was directed by the Chris Columbus, yeah. the man who did Harry Potter. Kurt, Kurt Russell. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy. Yeah, yeah, that guy. He, 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 you know, Kurt Russell and him came up with Christmas Chronicles. And for two, perfect, they brought in Goldie Hawn. Yeah. It's a perfect did- Emily Vanderwerf overlap of just all my interests. David, um, I had I had no idea. Yeah, why would you? Why would you know that? Well, why would anyone so know that? It's hidden so knowledge. That, it's like the fucking Incan Empire. Yeah, this yes. Is our curse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess maybe we do Christmas Chronicles on Patreon one, and then the two for the. Columbus I refuse movie. to entertain this any further. <laughs> the <laughs> show is over. This is the end of the episode. And as always, <laughs> I would just like to read the leaked. Plot synopsis for the Expendabellas, which was <laughs> supposed to be directed by Robert Luketic, director of Legally Blonde and Win a Date with Tad Hamilton. 
they had said Avi Lerner had gone out with offers to Meryl Streep, Cameron Diaz, and Mila Jojovich to play the three leads. And this is how I'm going to end the episode, this plot synopsis. When America's Navy SEALs are wiped out trying to penetrate the island lair of a deadly despot who has captured one of the world's top nuclear scientists, it becomes clear that there is no such thing as the right man for the job and that this is a mission so impossible that only women can handle it. The only way in, some of the world's deadliest female operatives must pose as, wait for it, high-class call girls shipped in by private plane to satisfy (laughs) a dictator and instead save the scientist and the day. Please make this movie so I can make the press chunk it really uncomfortable. Sounds Uh, sounds We're proud to announce that Blank Check Pictures has acquired the rights to the Expendabellas in Turnaround. No, I don't want it. I don't want it. We got it. it. (laughs) Turn it back around. (laughs) We got it. Can't wait. (laughs) 